Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 956 with Jamie Schrottberger. Running a business is like the most creative thing you can do. Now, I'm not talking about just being a brand, but like thinking about how to interact with a customer, to interact with your staff, to how do we engage the community through interior design to hospitality to product and elevation of products. So I think it's very creative. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60-day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone fred langley ceo of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the restaurant system pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants fred will teach you recipe costing cards guidance in your books for accounting cash control sales forecasting checklist budgeting for the entire year scheduling for profit it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp Today's episode is brought to you by Pop Menu, and restaurants have been hit hard over the past last years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever, trying to meet the expectations of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like... Can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. For a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off their first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, CEO of Spread Bagelry, Jamie Schrottberger. Jamie, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. Dude, I'm super psyched for today's conversation. Uh, just doing a little bit of research. Knowing that you see the value in Brooks makes me know that you recognize good people when Absolutely. you see them. So I have a feeling there's going to be some nuggets. And I don't always get to talk to a CFO or previous CFO mm-hmm. who's now a CEO. So I think going from such a analytical data driven role to more of like a visionary role. I'm excited to get into how that's been for you. It's been great. It's been great so far. I'll look forward to getting into it. Yeah, man. It's going to be really cool. Um, I can't wait to dive in, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, Inspire um, and encourage. Inspire um, and encourage. Versus uh, command and control. Versus command and control. The way to uh, inspire people is through humility, um, learning a lot of what they're about, um, and talk about the future of uh, the great things that are happening right before their eyes in in the present day. But talk about also the uh, the great things that are coming down the pike, the transformational things that are happening with the business or the industry, um, and encourage them to you know be part of it, be a bigger part of it. Uh, rather than being a clipboard manager telling them what to do, 
um, do it yourself and show, show them how to do it right the first time. I love that, man. And I, I think that the industry for the long time was all about command and control, mm-hmm. like the brigade system, the shouting, the throwing pans at That's each right. other. Right. And the, it was like lead by fear, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. command, control. Um, and that's one way to do it. And it works, but for like a really short period of time before people move on and go to the next place. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I think, I think what the restaurant industry has, has done um, has done a lot of damage. Um, if you think about the turnover in the in- restaurant industry, it's pretty high because it's a lot of command and control. Yeah. And instead, um, you know, if you can encourage people to make it a career, um, to learn more, always raise their hand to do more. Uh, I think it's a better place to have someone make a career out of it. And, yeah. Uh, be part of the, the solution. Yeah. I, and I really do love anything that's opposite of command and control. And you reminded me of another quote that came up on the show. Uh, it was uh, Nick Cirillo from Nick's Pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, trust and track versus command and control. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of hear that same thing. Like you, you inspire people with the, 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 the wisdom, the knowledge, uh, and you encourage them. You, then to me, that's like, that's the, like the trust side of things too. And then you just pay it. You're, you're tracking on the back end with the, the, the technology, uh, the reporting, mm-hmm. and you kind of just let people do their thing because that's what you hire them for. Correct. And then you don't really command until it's necessary correct. right correct yeah yeah there's, yeah. there's definitely the uh, xy axis of productivity on the y axis and on the x axis it's um ethics and morals and kindness yeah and that and if you're in that top box if you're very ethical and and accountable but you have high productivity those are the dream uh, people um but i'd also even if your productivity is low as long as you have high ethics and high morals and you know want to do a great job very accountable we can teach you more. We can get you faster. Um, but it really comes down to um, inspire people to do better. And we try to find the, the right people to be. They're the ones who really run the business. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm the CEO. But they are the ones day in and day out running this company. And, um, you know, to have that, the special people um, following, being accountable, but also being inspired by what they're doing on a daily basis. That uh, reverberates over to the customer every day. And it... Uh, it does reverberate to the financials and the, the how do, output. How do you inspire people to make bagels? It's not, not to say there's anything wrong with making bagels, but sure. you know what I'm saying? Like, how do you take something that seems very like repetitious and um, it's flour and water? You know, it's a you know it's a it's a round piece of bread with a hole in the middle. Right. How is that inspiring? And I'm not. I love bagels for the record. I'm not right, right. banging on bagels. Right. No. No. <laughs> I think I think people are are um, you know in this business for different reasons. Um, the way we, I mean, the bagel industry has been kind of commoditized in a way, and we're trying to decommoditize that um, by uh, offering a product that is uh, an old world craft, but modernize it, um, but in, make sure that it's a it's a craft bagel, an artisan, and everyone's every bagel is going to be different. It's an old world craft. How old is the bagel? Uh, the, the, from the knowledge that I have from our marketing department, it is uh, you know there's uh, sex of uh, of of people in Poland that came, some went to um, New York and some went to Montreal. Yeah. And that was in the mid, mid to late forties. Okay. So um, it's been, it's been around a while. So it's uh, basically taking that same old world craft of, you know, making the bagels, baking the bagels um, and kind of putting into a, a wrapper of an elevated wrapper, more modernized, whether you have the, uh, experiential show of pulling bagels out of a wood fire oven, which what we do, which yeah. is the Montreal style, um, to the music that we're playing, to the vibrancy of our our guest, our staff, um, and uh, the elevation of the product is also very important too. It's not just a 
you know, a cup of, a cup of coffee and a, and a bagel. It's uh, something of experience almost every time. Yeah. It's not what you're doing. It's why you're doing it. Correct. Right. Yeah. Well, but even though if you eat just because you're a baker doesn't mean that you're not a leader on this team. I mean, if the baker is, doesn't show up, there's no business. Right. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of responsibility there. Um, and you know, keep on trying to make it better and better. And over time that baker will, uh, become more of a, they have a very important job, but they will be a leader. I mean, you can always jump over to the cash register. You can talk to our customers. You can see someone waiting a long time and, and pulling a bagel right out and breaking it in front of them. It's like, try this. This is mm. the best thing you've ever had. Yeah. Um, and I still have not had one of the bagels yet. We're saving that. Cause I know <laughs> as soon as I have a bagel, I'm going to want to take a yeah, nap I and I want to be awake for this exactly. interview. Exactly. So I can't No, you're great, man. I can't wait to dive into, I like to say behind every great restaurant is a great person or people, sure. right? Pe- person and people. So really what we're here to do is to dive into who you are mm-hmm. and how you got to where you are today. What sure. advice you have for the next generation of people who are trying to achieve what you have achieved. Sure. And then we're going to dive into, you know, the evolution of spread and not just how you, how spread got to where spread is, but mm-hmm. also where you are today and where you're going. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, this is going to be fun because we just, we're talking to your Love COO, it. Brooks Tanner. Yes. Good friend of mine. We got his rendition, and this is going to be right off the heels of, of his interview. So we'll see how the stories line up. Great, great. I hope it lines up perfectly. <laughs> yeah, awesome. I'm sure it will. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? I see you're a graduate of uh, Denison University. You got right. your BA in economics. You went to the University of Illinois, and you got your B- MBA in finance. Uh, you're an equity analyst. Like sure. it's not a, tradi- a traditional path. Not at all. Right? Not at all. And the you know getting your MBA, um, focusing on finance, really can be for any industry, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, and so having that knowledge, going, getting my um, MBA and then getting my CFA, which is a chartered financial analyst, I went into the, the buy side or the portfolio management uh, area. So working for big companies that you would know, a company called BlackRock. Yep. Um, and after BlackRock, I worked for a company in the Philadelphia area called Turner Investments, which is a you know, pure growth investment manager. Um, and I had a lot of roles at BlackRock or at Turner, uh, which uh, were very exciting. Um, both both roles were really trying to identify companies that were uh, uh, disrupting an industry mm-hmm. uh, or are market leaders of an industry in a very small capitalization way. So very small companies, whether it be micro cap, small cap, or um, a little bit larger than that. And so I was trying to identify those companies that were disruptors, um, leaders uh, doing had a technology difference or a uh, a brand difference where they were seeing market shares uh, changing. Uh, and I focused, you know, as a portfolio manager, I focused on finding those great companies from all the analysts that I worked with. Um, but my other hat was as an analyst, and I focused on the consumer area and uh, whether consumer staples, which is the Procter and Gamble's, this this the toilet paper and paper towel kind of people to restaurants and retail. Yeah, and there's quite a difference between the two. And um, as I focus on restaurants, uh, for example, we were we were looking for those companies that were showing great four wall contributions. Okay, so, um, okay. So this is where I, I re- this is where the magic's going to start to come okay. up because I'm starting to see the value you're going to bring to this mm-hmm. conversation. So just to summarize, your job with BlackRock and Turner was to find disruptors mm-hmm. and innovators. And, yes, because you're looking like where should we put this money? Correct, right? Correct. So and you were just about to get into what you're looking for with sure. restaurants. Sure. So what exactly were you like? So this is where it all connects. Like yeah. you might have not been working in restaurants, correct? But you're. Stuck 
studying the crap out of them. Correct. We're looking to see what is a good investment. So what were you looking for? Yeah, sure. I was looking for the comp- those companies that uh, were experiencing um, increased market share within their area, whether it be in the, the, the bagel category to the you know, Mexican to the ca- fast casual to wherever. Um, and I was looking for those companies that had a great four-wall contribution. What's which, that mean? Which means the amount of money that flows to the bottom line from a, re- from a single restaurant. And if you can look at it, you can look at over on one restaurant or, you know, 120 or 200 restaurants, what are those restaurants outside of corporate overhead and, you know, R&D and all that kind of stuff, all the real estate guys that are out there working on, on salary, just look at the restaurants themselves and how profitable are those restaurants? What are their revenue growths on a quarter to quarter, year over year basis? Um, what are their margin profiles? Um, how much labor has to go into a restaurant? And really try to understand who are the most profitable and what we could tell and where most of the majority of the investments was in the fast casual area. Mm. Um, Being a growth investor, personally, I didn't see a whole lot of growth in the uh, quick service guys. Um, I mean, if you go back and look at uh, restaurants over the last 150 years, like literally the, the first 130 years are all about logistics, how to get a frozen patty to this roadside in Omaha, Nebraska, yeah. right? Um, the last 20 years was more about um, respecting yourself and respecting the food you put in your body and respecting how that food was made. Um, and that's the Paneras, the Chipotles of the world. Has um, it been 20 years? It's, it's been 20 years. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, like, is that, I'm, like, I'm looking, I'm like, that, that, is that really? But yeah, it's been about 20 years yeah. where the shift, yeah. like the, the 2000s came and there was, this, and not to interrupt your flow because I'm loving no, it, I'm but there's been the shift from like logistics and like how can we do the most right. with as, as little effort as possible? And I think we got to a certain point where like, I think we did we got almost too far in that direction. Mm-hmm. We're like, we're really sacrificing the integrity of what we're doing by just focusing on the bottom line. Correct. And then like, we were like the scale swung way too far to one mm-hmm. side. And now I think what's starting to realize we're like, Hey, you know, there's some things that are worth our time and resources, like putting good holistic ethical food into bodies. Right. And like the, I think we're starting the consumers are starting to recognize that. Right. And now the, the market's starting to follow the demand. Correct. Is that what you, who do you back a- that up? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so <clears throat> the fast casual guys were uh, kind of breaking the mold a little bit where you had casual diners, which like, like, like a Darden, for example, or Olive Garden kind of thing where they have a lot of seats and how they get butts in seats is, you know, it's hard to predict as an analyst whether what the weather was going to be like or what promotions they were doing or if people wanted to eat Italian food, right? So th- the volatility in casual dining was too high for me and the growth in fat in quick service was not enough. And but, so I was looking for companies that were growing their units but also growing growing market share or mind share in the millennial categories or, or wherever or whatever kind of subsect we're looking at. So what... I'm going to start drilling down because this is, this is the stuff that's getting me excited. So you, earlier you talked about uh, cash flow from the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So what you're talking about when you say that, and this is me just trying to summarize and make sure that I'm st- cause mm-hmm. you're way smarter than I am. No, I'm st- trust me. <laughs> uh, what you're trying to say there, or what you are saying there is that you're looking for restaurants that 
basically have margins. It's not about how much cash is coming in. It's about what's the gap between it's, the bottom line and the top yeah, line. It's margins, number one. Number two, it's predictable predictability and the repeatability of those units. So basically, mm-hmm. system-dependent operations, not people-dependent operations. Correct, correct. Yeah. So get, if I put one in, in New York City, does the one, same one work in Syracuse, New York? So not market-dependent either. So pe- like, so not dependent on the people who are making it happen, not dependent on does this only work in, say, if we're doing like crab cakes. Right, Will right. crab cakes do as only well works in, in Maryland and exactly. should work as well as Chicago. Yeah, yeah, so you're not dependent. People aren't going to that area for the thing. Correct. Plus, crabs are expensive and if you remove the logistics from getting the crab from the bay to mm-hmm. you know that's that's an example of right. being dependent on location yeah yeah so looking for the repeatability and predictability of their business it really kind of started if you look at the funnel of all the restaurants you could look at um, they were all kind of focusing in that fast casual area um, they were growing units they were had concepts that were differentiated and then remember we talked about the commoditization of a lot of things. So 130 years of quick service restaurants, you know, the McDonald's and the like getting to a roadside somewhere in the world. Um, it was all the same. And what we started to see is, is people started doing a little bit, doing their own thing and saying, Hey, we can do barbecue better. We can do this better or shake shack and make a better burger category change like overnight. And so you have, um, those people started to be success stories and they're all kind of funneled in that fast casual. So, a lot of my investments were in the fast casual area. Um, I think I've seen, I tried to put a number on this, and this is the best guess I can make, about 1,500 P&Ls over the 20 years that I was an analyst. Um, and so over that, you know, I invested in a lot of those. Um, there's a lot of successes. There's a lot of failures. Um, but what those failures taught me was some of the, the learnings of what to do and what not to do, whether it be brand mistakes, whether it be, um, growing too fast, um, growing too slow, and, and having people leapfrog you, um, to knowing what really matters in a restaurant. And um, from a financial point of view, so the output is kind of like the, you know, how well you do on that four-wall contribution. But you can't go in and say, hey, I need to have the best numbers in the world. And because if you do that, you know, you're going to piss off a lot of people you're going to command and control you're going to be like you have to do this you have to do this to get those numbers and instead what i've kind of learned over the years was that's the that's the byproduct of what kind of goes into it and what goes into it is the respect and dignity uh, for your staff for your customers um and you know really trying to inspire them to be better and to make something that's you know, a lot of people are trying to do things that haven't been done before. Yeah. And the other thing that just to compound on what you're saying, when you, when you make it about the integrity of the brand mm-hmm. or integrity of relationships, right. caring about yep. people, yep. you, I think there's a lot of, um, this, there's a lot of trends that mm-hmm. happen. And when you're just chasing a trend, it's real easy to be like cool today, gone tomorrow. Correct. But when you put the money and the effort into the people and the resources into the, the brand right. of like, uh, we're more than just a trend. We're a movement. We're a set of values and beliefs, and we're going somewhere. Like then, it, it tends to have more lasting power. Sure, right? sure, absolutely. Um, earlier, you mentioned real quick when you're looking at these uh, like big picture stuff. You're looking at different brands. You're, you're talking about the volatility of the casual mm-hmm. dining or like full service. Sure. Um, talk to us about. It sounds like you kind of developed an advert, like a, an aversion away from that sector. Over time, I've. It was, it was fun to learn about some of those great brands, um, but when it comes right down to it, there's, there are, um, they put a lot of seats 
and they spend a lot on rent and put a lot of seats in there. And unless they fill them, you're never going to maximize the value of that restaurant. You're limited. Your your capital or your 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 cash flow is limited by the amount of butts you can put in the seats. Yep, exactly. And you're also increasing your bottom line by having some space to put the butts in the seats. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So, so that so that always to me was an inherent problem for them um, when they do have that. You know, the great Saturday or Saturday nights are always full. A lot of casual dining restaurants. So it's hard to get in. Um, and then they have the turnover of the table turns, um, which are pretty high. So you try to get people out every hour and 10 minutes, whatever. Um, it was just very difficult to understand, you know, how they hang on to those assets on that Monday through Thursday where they have all this space and there's, you know, 30% full. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if Saturday night is not a great night or it's a night when a football team has the home game and everybody wants to go to the game and the restaurant's empty – the volatility of those results are so high because the fixed costs are so high in those restaurants. They have a huge kitchen. They have a huge um, production facility. They have a huge dining room. And I just loved the predictability of some of the fast casuals, which were looking in that 2,000 to 3,000 square foot buildings, um, typically, maybe a little bit larger. Um, but they were pushing through people um, fairly fairly quickly and had low overhead. And so it just it worked out pretty well. So... One of the thoughts that are running through, I kind of want to go into um, a little bit of a rabbit hole here. Mm-hmm. We're gonna, we'll come back to your timeline. Okay. Uh, but I think one of the issues with our industry, and don't, let me know what you think, is that we tend to compare different segments against each other as far as value-wise. We only focus on the cost of the food. Like, so like we'll compare the cost of a burger at a QSR to the cost of a burger at a full... You know, a, a casual dining or even a fine dining restaurant mm-hmm. and we'll be like wow this burger's $18 like how do you get off and tar- charging me $18 for a burger mm-hmm. and then I mean I can get this burger the same burger at a, a fast casual for like $9 or right. $10 right. I think there's a, a, a kind of a, a messed up perspective or sorry is that the right yeah perspective. yeah perspective there's a messed up perspective from the consumer looking into the restaurant industry and saying, how does this fine dining or find a casual dining restaurant get away with charging me $18? Like, what are you actually paying for when you go to a fine two-ish casualish type restaurant? Sure. Get into that. I do think consumers do that, yeah. right? Um, I personally don't think it's fair um, from two perspectives. One is... Um, they're different dining experiences. Um, and so we, we come up a lot where, you know, there's other, other bagel options, right? Um, out there, there's uh, different breakfast options. And so you are next to a first watch, for example. That's a totally different experience than what I'm, what we're, we're coming up with. If you want to have a, a meeting and you want to have a waiter bringing you coffee and not, you know, not have to go to the counter and, and pick up your stuff, it's just a different experience. So, Understanding that you're buying the experience as well, um, or the the reason why you're there is important. Secondly, you know the eighteen dollar burger at a um, a casual dining company uh, versus the McDonald's quick service is the overhead. They have more overhead. They have to pay for that young lady or, or, or man that comes over and, and takes your order. Um, it's usually on a silver a silverware on a plate that has to be washed. You know, there's so many different layers of complexity in a casual dining restaurant um, than you would at a QSR. I mean, it's cost 12 cents for the, the paper and the bag that, you know, goes in at McDonald's. Um, but you're paying these 
people nowadays you're paying you know dishwashers fifteen dollars an hour plus right? yeah so there is overhead and um, they're just trying to do their best yeah. to make it work and their model may be inferior um, uh, at times of the year um, and but they have to run a business and if if you want to be at that restaurant for whatever reason it is is the best burger or that you love the ambiance um, what have you maybe you like the bartender who knows but like you're there for a reason. That's usually why I, why I go to places. <laughs> Honestly, if I'm because yeah. I like who's working there. Right. I don't food to me like is not that hard to do well. Right, right. Like you can a burger is not that hard. It's ground meat. F- put it on the grill. Flip it over. Sure. You know it's really not that difficult to do well. Correct. But what I like is relationships. Sure. I go to a place because I know so and so is working, and the people that like the people that go there, yeah. the people that it's the psychographics. I want to I like hanging out with these people. I want to be associated with these people. Right. That's what drives. Do these people have the same values as me? Do I fit in here? Mm-hmm. Like that's what's going to drive me. Um, kind of where I'm going with this whole thing too is like I really do think the restaurant industry needs to be better about communicating what we are and what we do. And I think that we've been so afraid of, I don't know, turning off the consumer, uh, insulting the consumer. Mm-hmm. We're so like, we're so driven by what the consumer thinks. And I right. think that's probably one of the biggest issues we have as an industry. What are, what's going through your mind? Sure. No, I, <clears throat> I was just thinking about the $18 hamburger. Yeah. Um, because if you do have the relationships and the kindness and the hospitality and the cleanliness of a, a restaurant and, um, you know, great ambiance, great music, all that stuff, whatever makes that restaurant work, $18 is, is fine for that experience. But if you're trying to have the same profitability, but you don't, don't have those, um, those complimentary things to that burger, whether it be the cleanliness or the service. great drinks and service, yeah. um, then you're not going to last. And, yeah. and so, you know, there's, there's reasons why it has to be $18 because there's a lot of cost involved, um, with, you know, sourcing the burgers, the buns, but also make, make sure you have the best cooks and the restaurants always immaculately clean and the ambiance is great. So there's expenses there, but you really have to have that, um, that hospitality, uh, to make it kind of people come back and yeah. have it worth it for them. Well, it's, it's interesting because we live in a world where the restaurant industry is diversifying so much. There's mm-hmm. not just like, there's so many different types of restaurants today. Mm-hmm. And I think we as an industry need to be better about communicating to the consumer, what type of restaurant where we are and what you're paying for. Right. And no, this isn't too expensive. You just can't afford it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah. You know, and like that's an awkward thing to say, but it's true. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we get that at, at spread. I mean, we have an elevated product yeah. and in a very experiential, you know, in-store dining experience. So, um, when people come in and say, "Hey, I can get this same bagel for you know half the price down the street," you know, you can always turn it on them and say, "You know, it sounds like you have other alternatives." Yeah, like, and and they say, "Well, it's not as good as yours." And like, "Oh, okay, well, uh, you're right. We we bake it in a wood fire oven. We do all this stuff. We use the finest ingredients, best salmon." cream cheese, homemade, that kind of stuff. And they said, well, yeah, I hear you, but it's really kind of expensive. And, and, but you'd let them kind of sell themselves and you say, yeah, it looks like you can, you can get it cheaper. Yeah. Um, but they're like, well, it's not as good. It's not as good quality. You know, I'm here. You're like the, you know, one of the things we talked about is like, you know, the dignity of our, our store staff and, and respect and getting that hospitality. And I know John over there and I know Emerald over there and, that what makes you come back. That's part of it too, because you're hiring great people. Um, and oh, also, I know that you give a lot back to the community as well. You are part of that. You're like the the epicenter of this community. So um, there's a lot of great product, great values, great service. I, 
I'm buying it. Yeah. You know, and just let them. I mean, there's almost a part of me that feels like the restaurant industry, like if you go back even further, like the 1800s, right? right? right. Restaurants were, and like even further than that, the 1700s, restaurants were literally the center of towns. Yep. You know, and like we, 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 where who where you got your news, where you got your politics, where you got your right. mail, where right. you we were the internet. Restaurants right. were the original internet. Right. You know, it's like where you got to, to socialize, to get your all of your information. And we like revolutions started in bars <laughs> and restaurants. Yes, it is. And I think there needs to be another revolution where we're basically saying enough consumer, we're not reacting to you anymore. The the world needs change and we're gonna tell you what you need do you know what i'm saying like and that seems so counterintuitive to what we're taught with big business so like you know like the consumer drives the market and there's truth to that but i think we just like that we reached a point with the the food system going way too far in one direction and we need to find a balance i think we need to find a balance again of like basically being influencers and leaders and, and well i think that's already happening I mean, yeah. think about you know uh, the better burger category is perfect in my my mind of we didn't know that we needed that um, and sometimes things, you know, aren't, there's no aha moments. There's someone saying, I'm going to do something different. I want to, um, I want to elevate. I want to change. I want to do fusion. I want to do something. So there are, I always look at the restaurant industry as like the music industry where it used to be like four or five labels that controlled everything. And then iTunes came out and then everybody in, in YouTube, um, were able to, you know, bypass some of those gatekeepers and now can offer something on their own. And I think, you know, the restaurant industry, it's very easy to get into, right? It's the same kind of thing. So you, you have a lot of different people um, coming up with different concoctions or ways of doing things. So I still think that re- revolution you're talking about is still being pushed from the restaurant industry because I think the consumers really don't know what they want until they get in there and Bingo. they're like, wow. But that's the thing, which is I'm going to come full circle and then we'll get back to your story, mm-hmm. which I think that we need to be willing to educate our staff, not just hire them, yeah. but educate them, teach them how to read a PL, mm-hmm. teach them to be able to have the conversation right. with the consumer. Like, oh, here's a piece of paper that breaks down every cost that went into this burger, and this is how we came up with this yeah. number. Right. And be able, and have like your literally your 18 or 19 year old employee with your eleva- to, elevator pitch of like why it's yeah, worth it almost. But I think that. we have to explain to people, like, listen, like your consumer expectations are ruining the world. Mm-hmm. And we aren't going to let you do that. So right. this is why we're charging 18 bucks an hour. Sure. And if you don't like it, go get your burger from McDonald's. Correct. You know, <laughs> that's, that's very true. Very yeah. True. So true. anyway, this rabbit hole, but talking to somebody who is so like a fiscally re- minded, mm-hmm. you know, I just, right. I just want to get into that. Yeah. Um, so you said some of the things that you noticed that some of the fails of the brands, some of the fails you had mm-hmm. were investing in brands that are companies that didn't have the right brand or were growing too fast or mm-hmm. growing too slow. Mm-hmm. So let's bring the conversation to there and like what you learned about these failures or the, were they your failures or failures you were no, seeing? Happen? No, they were, they were my failures for investing in them. I'll tell you that. So this is when you were with, um, Blackwater or Turner, uh, uh, Blackrock or Turner. Buck, um, yeah. Turn is mostly when I was with Turner. Okay. Um, I had really two hats there. The looking at companies that were those innovative and disruptive companies and investing in them. Um, but from my point of view, looking at retail and restaurants, you know, I try to find those companies that have the great four wall contribution that we're talking about, but also you have to look at five, seven years down the road and I'll, we can go back to the public equity markets and kind of what I've learned in there. But, um, you, you say to yourself, what can this company be in five to seven years? And then you basically track their progress through, through the time. And there's obviously transitory periods, um, changes in strategy that occur. Um, uh, 
they grow too fast. They have to just hire massive people. They can't train well. There's a lot of reasons why things fail. Um, so it's all about you know predictable, repeatable growth year in year out. You have the infrastructure to, to do it, but you have a, a culinary answer um, that is kind of disrupting the market. So the Shake Shacks of the world are the perfect example. My biggest winner was Panera, and kind of one of my biggest mentors is Ron Shake from Panera, um, who's kind of sold sold the company you know three four years ago I think it was. Um, but I've learned a lot. Um, so even Panera had um, periods uh, that were very uh, lack of growth, let's say that, because they were transitioning their business over time, whether it be, um, you know, I remember there's really three parts that uh, the business that really kind of hurt Panera. One was like they couldn't get their coffee right, and, and no one would come there for coffee. It wasn't Coffee is a very ritualistic business, and that's what we partnered with La Cologne, which is a Philadelphia-based company, which I think is one of the best coffees around. So, you know, during that time when they couldn't get their coffee right, they kept on changing it. It was still not pleasing to the customers. The customers didn't come. Um, the second one was uh, organic kids' meal, meals, which I thought was fantastic. I mean, they were always antibiotic-free, but they really kind of pushed this for the, the soccer moms of saying, hey, I want to bring my kid to have something healthy because I respect their bodies. I respect what goes into their bodies. I respect how, the, how humane the, um, uh, the chickens or whatever are kind of raised. So that was the second kind of stair step function for me but in between those two there's a lot of just slow growth predictable growth um the last one was technology and you know being able to invest as a bigger company hundred million dollars into their website and kiosks and all the like and loyalty that really took them to the next level so being pioneers is very important and one of the things that i saw was a management who knew where they were going in seven years and yes it was gonna be rocky in parts of the time going from year one to year seven. But as long as they kept their, um, their vision, their long-term decision-making, um, they were going to get there. And um, that's the kind of company I, I loved and obviously did well with, um, you know, the Chipotle's of the world and the Shake Shacks. Great. But there were other ones that are made decisions based on trying to beat the quarter. They're trying to, you know, get their bonus at the end of the year by, you know, beating numbers by opening up more restaurants than they probably had on plan. Mm. Um, that was the ones that got in trouble and so, overextending. overextending. Yeah. And I think that we get so caught up with the data. Sometimes we lose sight of who we are, right. you know, like we get so caught up with trying to hit numbers yeah. and doing all these things that we get. Uh, it's, it's the long game. So exactly. it sounds like from listening to you, if I can summarize it, it's like you learn to not just invest in the brand, um, uh, I hadn't written down. I think I can go by memory, but not just the brand, not just the, the bottom line. Um, you know, is this, is it something that's repeatable? Is it dependent on the market? Is it not dependent on the, the people that are in it? But also is, is this the, I'm investing in the long game. Do these people know where they're going? Are they ahead of the curve Correct. or are they reacting to the curve? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And even if they're, um, I think they were, Panera is one of the first to start thinking longer term and start investing for the long term. Um, that, you know, I, I just, it was, it was that decision-making and having the ability to, to have the goodwill of the investors to say, hold on, we're doing this. It's going to take some time. 
Yeah. But the return is tenfold what you would ever expect. Yeah. And I think, sorry, go ahead. You yeah, wrote to say something else. That's it. That's it. So I think that we're kind of guilty of this right now where um, we're so driven by the needle moving. We're so data oriented. These big companies are so bottom line focused that they lose sight of the big picture. Right. Right. But I think, I think another thing that needs to happen right now too, is I think the industry needs a collective big picture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another issue too, that we're competing against each other, but we're not saying what's best for all of us. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, th- I think there's, there's different restaurants out there. Um, and, and fortunately, um, a lot of them are based on the capitalization of the companies. So mom and pops have to think about short term focused. They, you know, this is their income and this is what they live and die by the bottom line. And so the decisions of what to do has to be it's fear-based. Yeah, it's fear-based. It's been fear-based because I'm afraid if I don't do this now, I might go out of business. Correct. Correct. And so this, I mean, really great operators can make that last for a long time. Um, but the choice of saying, do I take 20% of my income and invest it in a new website or a new ordering platform or a patio outside, you know how that's hard to do. So again, it's not, it's not, that's not maybe not fear-based, but it's, you know, I want I need to send my kids to college. I can't do that now. And so that leaves them behind. So I think we have to, you know, we are in a position and as like many, many others are in a position where we can think long-term and see how we can transform we know we have something innovative and disruptive right now. We see it, you know, we go in next to other uh, bagel companies or breakfast places and we see what happens to traffic in that location. Um, just anybody can see it. It's not yeah. just me seeing the data. I can actually see it in the people walking into stores. So, you know, how do we take that magic that we have now and how do we continue to grow that and continue to delight and surprise the consumer that walks in the door every day? Um, but how do we make it easier for them too? you know, it's become, you know, that two clicks in the smile, right? It's the Amazon, you go on, it has all your credit card number, find it buy now. It's there the next day. Right. Mm-hmm. So like we're all being conditioned to expect a little bit more like Amazon in some, in some respects, inconvenience. And so, you know, we have to invest, um, right now, but we also have to, I'm already, we already have a website ordering platform. All that stuff, all the bells and whistles, loyalty, you can use loyalty or gift cards online or in the store. It's like, that's the beginning part. Like we're yeah. at the beginning of the race. So, you know, how do we go over the next three, four years? And that's kind of where I'm so focused on. To kind of talk about where you're talking, what we were talking about earlier. Um, we're talking about the future now. We're like getting a little ahead of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is idea that you noticed that um, you're all about, is this replicable? Is it dependent on geographic or can we, can it, does it have legs? Can it scale? Is it depending on people? Can it scale? Uh, is there, but I think the other big part of it now isn't just throughput and volume and, but like also leveraging, getting this idea that it, we're not limited by our footprint of the store or our location. There's really no limit. And as Correct. long as we have a digital footprint, yeah. uh, we can literally scale this thing across the, the, the country. And that, that's where you're seeing like restaurant tours who are mm-hmm. good at the, the making food and the logistics right. of the food side, partnering with like Mr. Beast burger, this dude who just has like millions of YouTube subscribers. And yeah. like, now you're like, you have the brand and we're going to streamline the logistics so much that we're going to put one burger, just one <laughs> menu item, one thing. And now your scalability is infinite because you're attaching that, that, that transaction to a brand yeah. and you're saying you're, you're franchising a recipe yeah. essentially. Yeah. Like, I totally, I totally agree with that. So yeah. Is it big, a good thing? 
Um, yes, it's a great thing because consumers, just like there are day parts in a restaurant, right? And there's people who want to use a restaurant for different things, different ways, and for different reasons. We are expanding a day. It's a huge day part. It's like an ongoing day part. All you know, well, we're only open until three, but um, you know, anybody can use us any way they want to. They can come in. They can sit with their coffee and their laptop. They can come in, grab and go. They can have it delivered to their home. There's, I think it's just a good thing. I think we have to understand that the, and not having children, I know how it is with, you know, the uh, addictive behavior of DoorDash and Gaviar. But, um, you know, I think, I think different generations like to use restaurants differently. And we yeah. have to just make sure that we are ahead of that game. Well, I think a lot of people hear that and they mm-hmm. go, I don't want to be a part of this industry if I'm locked up in a room someplace with a grill and I'm just looking at kiosk or like KDS orders coming in and shipping them through like a window and never, you know, like one burger at a time, like, Oh, I'm going to have the Mr. Beast burger. Now I'm going to have the Kanye West burger. And then there's the, I don't know, some famous person from Philadelphia cheesesteak, right? It kind of takes the soul out of what we do. And I would say, okay, I don't think that what we've been doing is also going anywhere. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that the old way is going someplace we're talking a lot about this with, with the Brooks, the yeah. third place, mm-hmm. more and more people aren't going to re- to work anymore. They, they, they want someplace else to go. At the end of the day, we're still human beings. We still need relationships. Yes. I don't think we've realized that quite yet, but I think that's the future. In my opinion, I think we're getting so like transactional and digitized mm-hmm. that we're going to hit this wall of, I'm so blah. I'm so depressed right now. And then people are going to be like, Hey, guess what? Yeah. We no. need each other. No, I, no, I, I realize that hundred percent. I do think that, yeah, you have to to be relevant. You have to make sure that you're there for the customers when they want you, when they need you. That being said, if you look at our our stores, our stores over the last you know five years, we've gone from fifteen hundred square feet stores, and now you know you look at I don't know, I don't know if your listeners are going to know where this is, but King of Prussia is going to be twenty five hundred. King of Prussia. King oh, of Prussia, you, you, oh, the the, the town down yeah. the street. Yeah, yeah twenty five hundred square feet. Um, you know, we have one uh, nearby that we're going to kind of really blow out at 3,000 square feet. And these are, so this is like two times, two times bigger than our old, our normal restaurants. And these are because of what you just said, um, because of the importance of what Brooks brought to the table in, in culture and, um, you know, staff um, hospitality and making sure that, you know, we're always greeting the customers, being able to talk to the customers, have an extra person there to educate the customer. Um, to you or even to say, Hey, I see you. I see you've been waiting. Here's a free cup of coffee. Let me get that for you. Yeah. That point of view is I think so important. And as we go into the future of restaurants, I think kind of we're we're kind of hitting the nail on the head right now with that, with culture and yeah. hospitality and, uh, with these bigger restaurants, if there's going to be more day parts, there's going to be more people in there waiting, sitting down, having chances to interact with our, our team members and hopefully have a better experience in that relationships that come out of it. Say, I want to come back and see, you know, Brooks on a, a, my normal Tuesday drive, drive by here. I'm going to yeah. stop in. I'm going to see him. And, um, and then I'm going to bring bagels back to the, uh, the office. So, yeah. or if, but if the there's also nothing stopping you from being all those things, as long as you're keeping the product that you deliver as far as the tangible product, not the, right as long as that stays consistent, who cares if it's coming from a commissary kitchen or from the counter, like if you're seeing it being made. Sure. Um, but what you're doing really now is giving people 
option through which how they experience your product. Right, right. So you can choose to come in, watch some TV, hang out, sit at the bar, sit on a comfy couch, hang out with your friends, and yeah. be here all day. Take like we're not trying to turn your table because we also have orders flying out the back door. Yes, too, correct, correct, right. Yeah. So, but diversifying and knowing like how to like segment the channels of revenue. Correct, correct. So how. Maybe so, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we, no, we are getting ahead of ourselves. I'm loving right, the conversation. Right, right. So are you looking to be in all those places? Yes. I mean, if you look at our business now, a third is a third of our business is people coming in, ordering at the counter, sitting down on one of those comfy couches, um, hanging out with their friends, drinking coffee, eating a bagel, whatever it is. Um, a third of our business is DoorDash. Um, it just is. And well, third party services, not just DoorDash. Yeah. Um, and then the other third is ordering through online for pickup. Um, and how they use us after they order ahead. Do they come order ahead and, and pick it up and stay here on those, on those couches or do they take it home or eat outside on the patio, uh, or a nearby park, whatever it is. So, um, some people want, you know, we're trying to give everybody the option right now. We don't have kiosks in the stores because we do like that personalized relationships. Um, but that's something that we're thinking about is like some people just don't want to talk to anybody. They want their great product. They know it's a great product. Um, and they want to go on their way. Yeah. Uh, so we're just trying to keep it to bring the conversation back to your timeline, but I'm loving sure. what we're getting sure. into, sure. but I just want to forget why we're here. Yeah. Uh, so back to your story, um, you, you, you kind of dove into what you do, what you were doing before this, right. where you were learning how to see value in brands yeah. and project their, their lasting ability Correct. to make sure they're a good long-term investment. Correct. Who, who were you? Were you, were you, was this company is, is, um, what's the, the company, not BlackRock, Turner. but Turner investments where they, were you basically helping other people tell, were you telling other people where to put, I don't really know what Turner Investments is. Are you, are you spending other people's money or are you? Yeah, so we, we, we manage money for mutual funds okay. uh, or uh, like Caterpillars um, for 401k okay. or like this is not a client, but like say Harvard's big endowments, right? Okay. They would take their money and say, hey, we want to put $30 million, $100 million, a billion dollars into small cap companies. Those are very companies, very small up to about 2 billion in market cap. That's it. Um, and we were, our job was to identify those market leaders and disruptors and innovators, um, and produce a return that's hopefully better than the Russell 2000 or the S and P 500, the like. So you're basically making these decisions on people that are giving you money. You're like, I'm going to put the money here. Correct. You're not asking them permission to put the money in there. You're no, saying, this, no. This is what we're getting. This is, this is what we do. And this is what you're buying from us. And that you owe us this fee for the expertise that we have of doing this for 20 years. Got it. And knowing the industries as we do. So at what point, so you did this from 2000, uh, from like 1998, basically yeah. from you graduate college to all the way to 2018. Yeah. In 2018, you say, I'm over this. Screw that world. I'm done with it. Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was a little bit <laughs> function of both. I don't think it was as fun anymore. And it, the reason it wasn't as fun anymore because there was the, you know, we talk about the Amazonification of the financial services industry. So because of Vanguard and my old employer, BlackRock, like they were, um, they were changing the game in terms of the amount of fees you could charge, uh, as well as why invest with Jamie on this fund when I can just buy a Vanguard fund for what's a Vanguard fund? Um, it's just a, a mutual fund company that probably is, actually is the largest in the world, and you just um, buy it. But you know, I would charge an X amount of dollars. They would charge, you know, a four four percent of yeah, that of yeah. what I would charge, and they would do it. But they would do it all with machines. Um, and that's quantitative, quantitative ways. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's what happened. So it was, you know, you could see it just wasn't funny anymore. And they were just taking so many dollars. The average dollar was harder to, harder to win business. Humans competing with machines and, and, and machines AI. were changing the game in the, in the equity markets too. Yeah. And, and, um, 
you know, it just, um, it, it just wasn't fun. So I had a, uh, one summer I had a, um, a trip and I, a buddy of mine, uh, had another family, t- visited his house as well. And I met this new guy and, um, he said, Hey, so, um, what do you do? And I told him what I did. And he said, Oh, it's funny. I just, uh, I just bought a restaurant company and me and my partners, my private equity partners just bought a, a local Philadelphia company and, uh, out of bankruptcy. And they were kind of the white knight out of bankruptcy and they needed someone to come in and analyze their business, uh, make recommendations of turning it around, fixing the, uh, the process and flow structure of their financial, um, department. And, you know, after many interviews, I took a job and was the CFO of Garces group, which is from the iron chef, Jose Garces in Philadelphia. And he had 16, uh, restaurants at the time, um, after bankruptcy. And so it was my charge was to, you know, basically turn the Titanic. Yeah. So this is a great (laughs) spot to take our first break. The finger sponsors we'll be back to answer the question why Garces, uh, in, you know, what, what, what your impact had once you got there. Gotcha. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back, and we got to the point in your timeline. The year is now 2018, so we're getting pretty close to present time. Uh, you spent just about a, a little over a year with the Garces group, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, Garces kind of got into a little bit of, you know, they kind of had a reputation. They got into trouble. They went bankrupt. I know that he maybe kind of had a reputation for not being the best employer at one point. Is that wrong of me to say? Like... Coming in, that's that's what I heard from, yeah, the newspaper. These aren't my this words. is not my words either. Yeah, these aren't my <laughs> so words. But I, I know he was on. He got some heat. For, he got like, some heat. And, and what it was was is, um, he's a terrific guy, amazing chef. Um, he grew too fast, and he did too many deals. Didn't have the sh- structure, and so the I think the quality of the restaurants started uh, turning a little bit, and so it wasn't he wasn't able to keep up. And when you have so much growth and you have so much momentum, you think nothing is going to stop you. You're 
quote unquote unstoppable. unstoppable. <laughs> um, and yes, you're paying more for this rent, but no worries. I'm the king of the hill right now. My brand has never been stronger. We're going to grow into that. I'm so afraid that's happening to me right now. Like these cameras that I'm surrounding myself with, like I'm, <laughs> for me, like $10,000 investment is like, whew, right, right. you come from not a lot. Like right. that's a big leap, but it's in the back of my mind. I keep on having to tell myself that yeah, yeah. it's a leap of faith, right? It, it is. Yeah. It is. And you have to believe in your brand. And, and he did. Um, and so he, he got in trouble that way. Um, nothing more than that. There's nothing nefarious at all. There's just... He grew too fast. I want to dissect this, though, because nope. this is what you do. You dissect businesses. You learn to see um, you know, what businesses need before they grow. What was he missing? So he had the brand. Uh, he, had, he had great you know, restaurants. He, he was winning. Like, he was on TV. Um, what was he lacking? What do you mean? When he grew too fast, what, what pl- things were in place before he started to scale? So I was not there um, when this all this. But you know the story. I, <laughs> I, know, I know some of the stories without um, like pulling anybody's name through the mud or anything no, like that. No, it's I, a learning I, opportunity. I, I literally think it was a um, two things went wrong. One is they were paying too much for the real estate that they were investing in, in terms of a lease. Um, you know, if you have a ten-year lease, you're kind of on the hook for those ten years, kind of guaranteed, guaranteed to it. The funny thing about this is the restaurant that we're sitting in right now was a Garces restaurant. Oh, really? Yeah. So this was a company called, a restaurant called 24. I'm not surprised. Going to the kitchen, it looks like a Garth. Yeah, that was Jose's test kitchen. And it's immaculate, right? And so there's a lot of money spent on these restaurants. And I think building out that is construction costs or the fixed assets um, was a real problem when you have pretty high rents. So not just the real estate was really expensive. The build-outs were were really expensive. Very expensive. Um, So I think that was probably it. And then secondly is... You know, um, you you need infrastructure, and you have to have a process. You have to have a repeatable process. And he was opening up different kinds of restaurants. So he was opening up um, a Brazilian steakhouse to a um, you know Spanish tapas. Say that one more time. I, was, I I don't think I picked it up. A Brazilian steakhouse. No, but oh. what was he? So he was paying too much for rent, too much construction. And what's the next thought? Uh, the process, the, pro, the repeatable process of like we we do this and we do it well, and we always find synergies along the way and we get better and better Got here. It. He's building one-offs, one-offs, one-offs because he has a mind that he's, he's an incredible chef. I mean, mm-hmm. he's an iron chef. And um, so for example, for this one, he's like, I want, I want to revolutionize pizza. No well, pizza has been around for a long time. Which he explains the pizza oven. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, that was, you know, he's got a lot of talents and if you have enough backers to say, Hey, we're willing to spend on it. Um, he did it, but, um, having so many different kinds of restaurants, it was hard to have scalability in terms of a total organization. I don't think he had the, the, the people involved and the trainers. They just wanted to be part of Jose um, rather than being invested in the success of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I believe that's true because um, I was not there before the bankruptcy. So. Yeah. So one of the things, so this, again, I think it all comes the balance, you mm-hmm. know, like one of the things I, and it's so like, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything and it's super frustrating because yeah. you think that the whole reason why I started the podcast was to get answers. Yeah. But it's just, we live in a very complex system. Yeah, the yeah. restaurant industry is a very complex right. system, right? Um, I think there's a balance. Like in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm listening to you. Yeah. Like you do want to scale. You do want repeatable process. You, you don't want to be dependent on people. You want to be dependent on uh, like systems and, and doing a few things really well. Right. right? right, right. Uh, but at the same time, like that sounds so freaking soulless and blah and boring. Right. Cause you gotta, I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, okay. I think it can be 
fun and exciting and not blah and boring when you have culinary leads like Brooks changing up the menus all the time with a solid core of what we is do is bagels. Hundred percent. Okay. Like it's just different kinds of cream cheese or different, yeah. you know, different kind of proteins or that kind of thing. So it's it's injecting creativity Correct. in things that can scale. Correct. Fast. That's the way I believe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why uh, Jose um, firm Garces Restaurant Group went bankrupt, and I think he was very lucky um, to have um, a private equity company, the, the Ballards, out of um, Louisiana. Just terrific three brothers. Um, really kind, but very smart. And um, one of the things that my job was to do was to, to increase the reporting structure and to make sure the financials were correct. I mean, you want, and it became a lot harder than I could have ever imagined because I've never I studied bankruptcy law in business school, um, but just as a class, like I'm not a major in, a, in bankruptcy law. So um, you know, dealing with even the remnants of a bankruptcy is very difficult and very time consuming. I think that took too much of my time. Um, and it's also, it came to a, a problem of you have a lot of assets. Um, what's on the table? Can we, can we close more can restaurants? Yeah. Can I, can we take two restaurants and say, these are scalable. Let's go. Let's, yeah. let's really ramp them. And the funny thing is, um, one of their concepts, uh, they're ramping right now. So the Ballards out of Louisiana, that private equity group, um, they own a coffee company in Louisiana called PJ's Coffee. And they did a fantastic job with franchising PJs. And so they're taking one of the Garces restaurants now um, and is, is franchising it. And I think it's going to be a great success. Yeah. So I can't help but think of Cameron Mitchell. Does that name Cameron Mitchell Restaurants ring a bell to you? No. Mitchell Restaurants based no. out of um, Columbus, Ohio. No. Um, probably like he's like the big dog, kind of okay. like Ford Fries, the big dog in mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta, yeah. Yeah. you yeah. know. Uh, Cameron Mitchell has been like the, the OG restaurant tour for like the Columbus, Ohio area. Okay. And I had an interview with him and I think that he, like, the, where I'm going with this is, is trying to find that balance of creativity because you have to remember, and at the end of the day, we're putting people into these restaurants right. and people need to have some type of creative outlet. You, at the end of the day, people still need to be people in order to stay happy. They need to be seen. They need to feel like they have security. They feel like they're growing personally. They need to feel like they have their purpose in life. And it's hard to do that when you're just ripping out like like cookie cutter restaurants all the mm-hmm. time. So I think that there, I, I like the idea of what Cameron Mitchell said where he's like, hey, like we have a lot of different concepts. But at the end of the day, they're the same chassis with a different outer shell. Mm-hmm. All of our systems and processes are exactly the same for all these restaurants, yeah. but we're just putting out, we're just changing the branding, we're changing the menu, but ultimately our core systems or core processes are all the same. And the people that are opening these restaurants that we're, that we're opening came from within mm-hmm. and we're saying, hey, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. What's your vision for a restaurant? What's your passion? Let's invest in that. And then you already have our culture. Right. You already learned all of our systems and processes. We're just changing the, the kitchen systems, Got basically. It. Got it. What well, are your thoughts on that? I think, I think Cameron's, I don't know Cameron. Yeah. I should know. I went to school, high school or college, uh, 15 miles away from where he is, but didn't have the money to go see his restaurants <laughs> yeah, then, probably. But um, I think that's brilliant in many ways yeah. um, because it does start with culture. Like, you know, one thing I also learned is, you know, when you commoditize your business too much, like for example, a retailer, and this is not, not a knock against certain companies, but you know, they try to grow and they try to grow and they say, you know what, there's a couple other outlets to grow. I'm going to go into Macy's. It's like, that's the end, right? Yeah. You know, when you go into some of the, or go into TJ Maxx or something like that, you know, it's, 
your brand is kind of going to slowly have a glide path lower to nothing, not no relevance anymore. So what we're trying to do here is very much what I think you explained with what Cameron said. And, um, you know, all of our stores, I don't know how many you've been to, but they all look different. Um, and completely different. The only thing that's the same is that back line. Mm. So I can take an employee from that restaurant and move him over there. And he's going to know exactly where the spatula is, where the cash register is, where the coffee is exact everything. Um, but everything outside of that is different. The show, the show. Um, so it's kind of funny. It's like to the point where, you know, we had a, uh, a refrigeration problem at one restaurant. We had to close it down for a day and people would come up and I would be at the front and say, sorry, we're closed today. But you can also go walk four blocks and go to our next one. They're like, I didn't know you had another one there. And I think that's the kind of the, the beauty of we're doing something, but we're, you know, not to quote Ron Shea from Panera, but like he came up with like the gathering place, like the place where uh, if you, if you, you know, give respect and dignity and, and have an environment that you can engage with your customer, um, you know they're gonna they're gonna come they're gonna come find you and they're gonna they're gonna love it and you know that you give back to the community that you are gonna be the community center for them for them to you know uh, have but having stores that all look different in such a dramatic way um, except for the back of the house um, I think that provides a little bit of uh, we're doing something different the kind of the unchained chain so I'm, I want to dive more into that I'm gonna leave that as a teaser okay. but I think to stay true to your story and timeline yeah. um, ultimately you weren't, you weren't with Garces for a long time no um, were you only meant to be there to kind of help him re- rejigger his financial situation and, and create a new structure going forward was that kind of like your the hat you put on or what was it meant to be long term, or what? It, it was? It was meant to be long term. Oh, okay, yeah. I, mean, I don't know how much we can, we're privileged to talk to. No, no, we're, we're, uh, it was meant to be long term. But what we I think the PR person might have just walked in. I want to be careful. No, 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 <laughs> no. But what? What I um, and it, it'll be a nice segue when, when if we have time uh, to talk about how the transition happened and it's related to um, kind of where my passion was. If you look, think about my past of looking for those innovative, disruptive companies that are predictable and repeatable process. There's one company that they have that I mentioned that um, they are franchising now. Um, I want, I said that is the golden egg of this whole restaurant group. We need to grow this quickly and you need to put all the money behind this one thing. Um, and that wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, heard well because um, they thought all of their assets were great. Um, and so I said, but this is the one you can make money off of. Yeah. It doesn't matter how great you are at the end of the day, if you can't pay the rent, right. it's not going to work right. long term. So they basically told me to go and try to find some money, um, from other VCs or private equity to, to kind of get behind this one concept. And in doing so, I met a private equity group who was interested. Um, and, um, they were, they're interested for a while. And then, um, I left and I called that private equity group and say, Hey, if you're going to talk about this one concept, you can't talk to me anymore. I'm no longer at Garces. They're like, we would like to talk to you tomorrow. And they hired me right away. And they told me they have a position, um, at, to help scale a company called spread bagelry. And so it was all because of Garces and my focus on the kind of investments that I'd like to see personally. And from my history of, of finding, um, equities to uh, invest in those disruptors and I found one and it kind of that's not the one that I ran with I ended up working for something that I thought when I saw the numbers of spread bagelry and the growth potential it reminded me and I actually charted this I charted the old um, you know Chipotle from 
you know, before McDonald's bought it, um, Panera back in the nineties, late nineties. Um, and I looked at what their four walk contribution was and Panera had this or spread had the same one. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, this is awesome. I got to be part of this. And so I got the job and, um, it's turned out to be a lot better because I don't have to do just do financials. So before we dive into spread and I really wanted to yeah. spend the rest of our time talking about spread, but I'm, my curiosity is getting the best mm-hmm. of me. What was the concept that you excited you with Garces? It's a, it's a company called Buena Onda, which okay. is Spanish for good vibes. And it's, um, it basically took a taqueria. Um, and they, they do have a taqueria, um, that is you know pretty big. And they basically just turned it into a fast, ca- a casual dining taqueria. And they turned it into a fast, casual format. And Jose's, culinary skills are, are just fantastic you know every day you can, i could see the sales every day so let's do a little it's case amazing. study real yeah, quick sure. of talk this talker you bueno onda am i saying it correctly bueno onda bueno onda thank yeah. you um so dude the talk the taco segment took off yeah you know there's yeah. reasons why it took off sure there's reasons why i think i had um oh my god his name is escaping me right now um Bar Taco. Mm-hmm. Bar Taco uh, yeah. yeah. What's his name? Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Um, Andy Forsheimer, I think is the name, but like, that's one example, but there's just sure. these velvet taco, yeah. um, you know, uh, out of Austin, Texas, um, Torchy's taco. Like there okay. was like, like 2015, there was like a taco, like yeah. explosion. Sure. So what is it about? We're doing a case study now, right? Um, through the filters that you put things through, the things that after 20 years of going in and trying to find companies to invest in, mm-hmm. what was it? What were the things that made this this concept so exciting to you? Um, and just kind of li- list these things out real quick to give us an idea. Another it's so simple. Yeah. So simple. It's literally chef inspired, but like a badass chef, Iron Chef, Jose Garces, producing a product in a fast casual format. That's all. Yeah, that's end of story. It's um, it's the freshness. It's the so the brand, the brand is tied to his name. The, the brand is great. Yes, the brand is tied to his yeah. name. But you have you know something. It's different. It's yeah. a better process. It's not a assembly line like Chipotle. It's um, you make your order and it comes through in a in a bag or on a tray. So was this kind of like Bar Taco, where like you would basically get like build your own taco, then send it to the the no. kitchen? Or no, no, it's just it's just a menu, but it's. It's fast casual. Yeah. Like that, that's the only thing. But the product is so good. And when you have certain things, like you'll have a, um, like a tuna dip and, and tortillas as an appetizer. I mean, you have creme fraiche in there. You have like really fresh capers on top or jalapenos. Mm-hmm. And like you can tell it's a different product than what you would get at any other kind of sort of taco place. And if you think about the taco industry uh, group, which I am not an expert at, um, but I, you can see the, quick guys, you know, the Taco Bells and the like, and you have the fast casuals like Chipotle. Um, and there's a lot of mom and pops. Um, Mm -hmm. so you know, coming into an area that has a lot of mom and pops in it, um, or someone who wants something different than Chipotle because they just get the burrito every single time. And you have, um, you know, uh, fresh fish tacos or fried fish tacos, um, with the lay, the level of elevation that you wouldn't find anywhere else. So, you know, the fresh um, uh, pickled red onions on top and, and the fresh guac. And it's the same guac that, back to your point, you're paying $18 for guac at his quote-unquote casual dining restaurant, but he packaged it into a, 
um, the fast casual format and charging vertical integration probably they're making it some, from the same place and just kind of shipping a kind of commissary no, no, or no? Not, not, not the guac but no. just the recipe is yeah, probably yeah, so, yeah, gotcha yeah, but um, I mean again I think tacos too they have, it has legs um, it, it's something that's universal like no matter where you are like mm-hmm. people want tacos yeah. um, it's a easy thing to eat you mm-hmm. know it's like all these things that it, it and it's relatively low lifting as far as how to like you got a tortilla yeah you put amazing stuff on it you fold it like yeah. it's replicable like, <laughs> it you is, know it is, so right. like it's checking all these boxes for you C- correct it's checking all any the other elements that are like a key just a case study thing that like made it like a good idea as far as a good business model um he does. He does have a bar in there, but I don't think that would, that moves the needle enough to say yeah. that's a differentiated factor. But I, alcohol does help. Margins are huge. Yeah, margins yeah. are big, especially um, if it's Mexican food. You got margaritas. You yeah. can make that by the gallon. Exactly. Yeah. I was. I was. I literally. I was just so surprised at looking at casual dining options at the within the Garces umbrella um, that you would have you know such big numbers on certain nights and then very low volumes the rest of the week. Um, and here it was. X amount of dollars. I'm not going to tell you exactly how much they make it a day, but like it was every day. Oh, it's raining out. Who cares? Same Give number. My taco. Um, snowing, sunny day, humid as heck. Same number. And it was, it's just remarkable. The stability of that, you know, those kind of revenue streams. If you're listening to this right now and you're looking for like a low lift way to get into the restaurant industry and you're willing to do some type of like commissary ghost kitchen concept, I think the breakfast, the breakfast taco is like so under leveraged it is. And, it, and there's so much such a it's eggs and and another protein or like whatever you can have like three or four options yeah. you can build those in a commissary kitchen and then you can right. do wholesale because like how <laughs> many cafes and it travels so well yeah how many cafes don't need, have that protein that food or whatever um and you just start you, you create a brand you get you do wholesale with cafes and convenience stores right. and then from there you scale like it's such there's such an opportunity there king's david taco she's probably going to hate me for like i got her <laughs> on the show i was like that's genius i don't know why more people it's such a low overhead to start yeah. what do you need to cook eggs yeah man like the overhead for that like anyway i don't know take that and run with it you're welcome it's my gift to you not you you. anybody who's listening (laughs) to this or you or whatever but okay it's time to talk about spread let's just go straight into the spread bakery right and this is where we're going to dive in so you have this um investing firm that Mm -hmm. reaches out to you and they identify you as somebody who could be the the person the Mm -hmm. solution to take spread to the next level. So let's paint the picture of what spread was. Sorry, let's paint the picture of what spread was before you got here. Got it. Um, spread was actually just a two store chain um, or two store uh, concept uh, founded by uh, a gentleman named Larry Rosenblum. And Larry used to travel a lot for, to New York for from Philadelphia for his business. And he would come back every every time from New York and and bring literally a trunk full of New York style bagels. And put him in a bag and hang him on his neighbor's door. And he became like known as the bagel guy because he would always have these, you know, fresh, you know, half dozen bagels coming down from New York. And he's like, God, this is, I can't believe everybody's saying how great these are. There's nothing around here. And uh, in his travels, um, he went to Montreal and he saw what they were doing in Montreal. And he said, this is different, Mm. like completely different. Um, so uh, he started with a Montreal-style uh, bagel company uh, called Spread in the Rittenhouse Square area. And, you know, part of the, I think, I think the genius that he had was you'd pick something that no one else knew about, but also put the Montreal-style 
um, name in the logo. So it says Montreal style wood oven bagels. And the, a lot of people came into the store and said, what the heck is a Montreal style bagel? I got to try it. And then they noticed the difference. And so what is the difference? Exactly? The difference is um, a New York style bagel. And so if you look at any bagel and you can argue with me all day long, but I believe this to be true that, you know, the, every bagel recipe is probably only about 5%, 10% different from any other bagel. Like there's the ingredients, the fresh, how good or organic the ingredients, and that might change a little bit, but flour, water, <laughs> you know, you're down the list. They're all the same. And um, so it's really about the process. So a New York bagel will be boiled in water and then they'll put through a heating mechanism, like a, whether it be a carousel heater or an oven or whatever, however they do it. Um, that's how a New York style bagel is made. Uh, Montreal, they boil it in honey water. It adds a little shine, a little sweetness to the exterior. And then Montreal style exclusively uh, bakes bagels in a wood fire oven. Okay. So it has the, obviously the heating element sometimes underneath to help with the hearth, but it's really the wood that's providing that, that heating mechanism, which provides a lot more flavor. Um, and, um, you know, it, it does, you have to reach into an oven, you got to spin them around, make sure they don't burn. It does create a little bit of a uniqueness to every bagel as well. And so what you have is that, that uh, shiny crust on the outside, chewy interior, but it has a lot of, a lot, a lot of flavor. Um, Montreal also, we, um, we dress the bagels on both sides and we kind of smother them. <laughs> if you, if you've gone out front, you see the poppies, uh, you can't see any bagel, oh, you yeah. see all poppies. It's beautiful. So, um, it's an expensive product. It takes, you know, I don't, I think you went and looked at the commissary where, where they're made of, you know, how long it takes to make 48 you know, hours proofing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, how long it actually takes to make oh, all yeah, the bagels yeah. and yeah. then the, then the proofing process after that. So it's an expensive proposition. Then to have a wood fire oven, which yeah. is not the cheapest thing no. in the world, uh, have a baker, one person in at three in the morning making them. That's one the of the things that's like, like with wood fire. I don't think people realize how hard it is to keep a, con- a consistent mm-hmm. temperature with mm-hmm. wood. You know, mm-hmm. you really need to be a skilled person. Like managing a fire is a skill in itself. Yes, you know, especially like and, and with, the, they're coming to, in. Yeah. New people are coming in excited to learn too. So like. But they, it's also sexy, you know. <laughs> there's something that's like when you see fire, you see yeah. wood. Like there's something I think primal with people. Sure? Where it's, I think it's baked into our. Yeah. I really because we like we are literally who we are because of fire. It's a it's a craft that these people have come with or have learned from us that is just so different, yeah. and they they love to be differentiated because not many people can work a wood fire oven. They can do it for pizza; it's easier. It's like one pie, you just spin it around. But like yeah. with when you have. 120 bagels in the oven and you have to rotate them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it's quite a process. Yeah. So, um, back to this idea of, um, like what I like about spread so far about this point is that it's, 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 uh, doing one thing really well, Mm -hmm. bagels, Mm -hmm. but not but you're niching down even a step further by saying we're Montreal bagels, Mm -hmm. you're Montreal bagels in a market that's predominantly New York bagels. So you have a unique selling proposition that stands out versus other bagels. You're only a two hour drive from New York. So like there's instant juxtaposition, which is good. Uh, you want to stand out. Um, you got the fire, the the fact that the bagel itself is different and the process stands out is different, which Mm -hmm. is good. And it's again, just doing, I love this idea of doing one thing really well um what are the other elements uh, based off the filter that you shared with us mm-hmm. when they when can i say the name of the investor company or is that something you guys sure, are cool sure. with? so M- mvp yeah, capital, capital Ragnar, yep. so basically before we get into mm, no let's keep going with this thought what is it about this concept that you think is just like a no-brainer let me get involved with this um kind of 
we were talking about um, the long-term decision-making that needs to be made Yeah. Um, at the same time. So I've obviously very patient um, uh, support from MVP Capital. That's obviously a positive. Um, if you, we are doing something differentiated, so if you look, so if I'm looking out four or five years, like what is the future? We talked about the 130 years and then the 20 years of like the fast casuals, Chipotle's. Like what's next? And I truly believe that you're always going to have third party delivery. Sorry, but you are. Um, you know, the way teenagers order right now, it's third party. So that's going to be here to stay. But what differentiates you? What change? What de- commoditizes a business um how do you make something better and it comes down to the kind of the four things that i think about uh going forward is number one it's got to be experiential um the next couple are you know hospitality culture and then technology has been you know restaurant business has been a complete disaster in terms of under investing in technology over the last 30 years so technology is a big thing for us going forward but number four on the list number one is experiential so having, I go into a bagel store and any, any normal kind of chain bagel store and I see bagels in a basket and I have no idea when those are made. I don't know how they're made, who made them, wh- were they made somewhere else and trucked in? You just don't know. So here you see that experiential factor of a baker pulling a bagel out of the oven and throwing it right in the basket. And I see so many young children with their moms come in and say, ah, oh, they just pulled out my bagel. It's probably not your bagel, yeah, son, but it will be something of the same sort, yeah. but you it see, was your big, that was the, the bagel that's there. It just went through that process. Exactly. Like hours, if it, not less. Ago. Yeah. Or less. Yeah. So we had the baker baking all day. Um, and so you have that experiential thing, that, that show that, um, um, so I think it's, it's a theater. And yeah. so I think it's kind of fun. And so you get to see that how it's, it's integrity. Made. Yes. Yes, exactly. So you see how it's made. Um, so it provides some authenticity to what we're doing here. Um, so that's really fun to the, to the progress, I mean, if we do an all, we do audits on who our customer is, and it's very important. You know, we have a, a customer base which is, you know, typically you know two thirds percent women, um, and so we we definitely embrace our carbness, right? Your what <laughs> our carbness, like oh, we, the, we are carb place, yeah. like, um, but we have also have to offer a lot of other things on there that are not just like pure meat, you know, on, on the on the on the menu. So more later options, so. Um, but you know, having them come in and, and see that show, I think it really impresses. So part of that audit, what do people say about spread? It's like, they call it progressively cool. It progressively cool. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Um, it's a, it's a really cool place to be. Like so progressive cool means in my mind, like open-minded it's, it's, I don't know, like challenging the status quo evolution, modern, not progressive, maybe a little bit ahead of its more time. Liberal, kind of I hate to say like, not that I don't want yeah. to think of liberal yeah, I don't, I don't Republican think, yeah, or anything no. like that. No, it's just, I mean, Philadelphia in general is a pretty liberal place, but, um, I think it's like, we're just pushing the boundaries on what cool is. And mm. I think part of that is the oven. Mm. The oven is a cool thing to watch, to see, to, to see being worked. Um, to see someone working their craft and, and coming up with a bagel for them. And it goes to the music or the menu boards, which are video now and all that stuff. Are your bagels considered sourdough? No. Because uh, I was curious because the proofing process is so long. Are you using natural yeast or? Um, we, we use instant yeast okay. for our, our yeah. product. Okay. I was just curious about yeah. that. Um, so 
back to this. So we talk, we're talking about the, the things that like uh, putting this brain through your, your checklist of things that make it work. Oh yeah. Were you concerned about scalability with such a, like a important skill based position, like somebody who to work the oven? Um, no, I, I think we were blessed to have a group of people who were probably the most loyal, accountable leaders in our in our business were were the bakers. Uh, we pay them a lot too because they are the heart of our of our business. So, um, I, I I wasn't worried about that. Now, when we start opening up new stores, it becomes a, a longer training period. So, a normal person like it, it, if you're a nice person and you have right the ethics and the morals that we're looking for and the, and the smile on your face we can teach you anything yeah baking is taking a lot longer it takes you know uh, 10 days th- two weeks longer than any other uh, position that we might have so you put them through 10 more days of training yeah, yeah. Uh, but what but they don't just you know put them through that extra 10 days and hand them an oven um we we put them no we put them through three plus weeks of training and then we put them on a schedule um and we have our our trainers that will watch them um do the first couple of days on their own but it's uh they, they do they produce enough bagels i mean every store we have produces you know at least 10,000 bagels a week yeah. you know it's just ma- massive numbers so the so the founder is Larry Rosenblum yeah um is he still active with the company um he's not active with the company um he he basically took a uh, took some time um, when I he, when he was bought out by private equity I was brought in really to take this concept that he created the magic for. When did he sell the company? Twenty eighteen. Twenty eighteen. And then I came in twenty nineteen. Okay. Yeah. So they they basically said we need someone who can scale the company. It was at seven locations when you came on, right? No, no, it wasn't. It was uh, it was like three. Okay. Three locations. So you opened up like three or four locations before Brooks came then. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, absolutely. Gotcha, absolutely. gotcha. Um, and we used Brooks as a consultant for some some work. Yeah, Brooks. Brooks, I met at Garces and was one of the the true leaders and mm-hmm. culinary masterminds. What was it about Brooks that stood out to you? Um, he uh, he's kind. He lives in the present. He listens. He's uh, sh- shows a lot of humility um, because he is such a great chef. I mean, if you look at um, Jose Garces and there was like uh, two or three guys that were his right hand man in terms of like right under Jose, but executive chefs Brooks was one of them. So he could uh, do anything and, but to do it with the amount of humility that he has and the focus on, you feel like he's the only person you're talking to. Like he'd been talked to like a room full of people and he's like, you're locked into what he says. He's a special individual. I understand. Yeah. 100%. Um, so you notice you pick up on this and you come here um, you, you, you assess the situation. You say to yourself, we need fill in the blank. Yep. Um, we need, um, consistency. And so I think that one of the things that, you know, when you have entrepreneurs like Larry, he would, he created a vision, but you need to, if we want to scale this, um, we need to have a, um, everything kind of from the commissary to the in-store prep, everything, uh, standardized to some level. Um, you know, every bagel is going to be a little bit different coming out of the oven, but we need to know exactly, you know, what we're making, making it the exact way every single time. So our commissary, I think was, you know, they were making things without a, a recipe book that were, they were strictly adhering to. So things are a little bit, a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think there's some appeal to that actually, but, um, if we're going to scale, we got to do, we have to do things by the book. Um, and so that was number one. Um, number two, was and this was interrupted by COVID, uh, so I was only on, on board here for about five months, and then COVID hit. So, um, you know, the next thing was was getting the right people. 
you know, we had a problem with, with get, getting enough people, but getting the right people. Um, so we had pretty much high turnover in that first year trying to find the right people. And then, you know, that's kind of one of the reasons I brought Brooks on, not besides his, you know, like Buena Honda, having a simple product like a taco, but having a chef-inspired one with little extra bells and whistles on top. Like we have a bagel, but it's an amazing bagel. But how do we continue to push the envelope on creativity and culinary creativity and culinary wisdom within our, our little box here um, to make an elevated product every single time and surprise and delight our customers when they come in, there's something a little bit different they can try that is as tasteful, tasty as the, the last thing that we came out with. So um, that's why I brought Brooks on, but um, kind of forgot so, what I was going with that. So the, the original question was you got here and this is where we needed, you needed consistency was the answer. Yeah, yeah. And um, Brooks was a solution. Um, and he became, I know he approached you because he loved the brand. Did he approach you or did you No, he, you were consulting. He was I, consulting. Yeah. I approached him and to through consult the consulting. Us. He became yeah. in love. He fell in love with the brand. Correct. And, and the, the reason I had him consult is because you start thinking about, you know, big picture saying like, what is our name? It's spread. Like we have spreads on bagels and, you know, I looked at the list and we had, didn't have enough spreads. I said, we need that. I need some really cool cream cheese. And I want you to think outside the box and come yeah. up with some really weird stuff. You're thinking we need to go one layer deeper with the unique selling proposition. Yeah. Um, it was in, it's already in the name the brand. Yeah. And um, I love that because uh, you look at some other, I'm trying to choose my word just right, wisely right. here. Uh, I think people get in trouble for trying to be too much to everybody. Right. And they think that, um, the solution in, in making your consumer happy is giving them too much or, or a lot of options. Yeah. Right. And, and what, yeah. I, I totally agree. If you think about Chipotle, it's like four options. Yeah. And that pick your, pick your burrito or bowl, you pick your protein and that, and pretty much that's it. <laughs> yeah. Know, so. But that's hard to scale when you have so many options. Cause right. now you have to build consistency around all those options. Yeah. But we, we didn't add, we didn't add too many. We added the exact same that we kind of we replaced a couple, um, you know, meats that go into a bain marie or something, putting different cream cheese in there. So we, we didn't really make it too elaborate or too um, sophisticated for, you know, anybody to handle. Um, but I, Brooks has the same mentality. It's like we're not looking at Panera or Manhattan as like we need to do what they're doing. Like we need to look at other companies in different industries and say how can we be crazy enough to put out a, you know, he comes. He he knows all the like curations of of our cream cheeses, but he's gonna, he comes out with some crazy stuff. He's a talented, dude. Yeah. So um, so what you're saying is it's not enough that we have our unique selling proposition that is the bagel, but that's not enough. We need we're a, a Montreal style bagel. Right. That's not enough. We're a Montreal bagel company that focuses on the cream cheese. So not not focuses on, but but it, it's in our name, and we yeah. need to make sure that that is representative well um, because the bagel is so great. We need to have a plethora of bagel options that are not like everybody else's. We need to veer off a little bit and come up with our own. So when I first looked at your menu online, I think there was only like five options, right? There were like five bagels front and center online. There was like your, your traditional. And they're like, I think I counted like four other options below that. There's, there's more. We could have been out at the time um, when you looked. But yeah, we have. You so know. That's, that's your digital storefront. Yes, that would be our digital storefront. I don't, I don't know if they turn it off because yeah. we're out or not. I came in and I saw that there was a lot more options. Yes, is yes. the point that I'm trying yeah. to make. Yeah. Um, so how many total um, options do you have for, say, just bagels? I think, I think it's nine. Nine bagel yeah. options. Yeah. How many different cream cheese options? Do nine. You have? 
nine. Yeah. And you also <laughs> or have ten a, if you can count hummus, but yeah. Yeah. And then you also have um the sandwiches. Right. How many different sandwich options do you have? I think we have about uh twelve or fourteen uh, okay. in that range. Um but it you know, there is But interchangeable. So it's kinda of like build like building a bowl. It's like what's your what's your base right aka yeah. in this case if, if you look on what's my, your bagel? If you look online and you look at our numbers, you'll see that you know, a bacon, egg, and cheese, or sausage, egg, and cheese is overwhelmingly the highest of the sandwiches yeah. by far. And I'm going to get into some menu engineering. Yeah. This is leading in that direction. Yeah. But but the, the next one is actually build your own bagel. And, okay. And so it has, you know, we, I want it scooped. I want avocado. I want truffled mushrooms. Um, and I want, you know, tomato and sausage. I don't know. But, like, you can build your own. And that's our, probably our second biggest option right now. Yeah. But I guess the point I'm going with, like, it's just, like, the, the significance of, like, just doing a few things really well. Mm-hmm. Um but also just keeping your menu kind of small, um, yeah. which is, I think, a lot of people get in trouble there. Yes. But um, with the menu engineering, um, is, there, like, is there a reason why you put certain things front and center? Do you try to make the process of ordering online different or the experience different online? Are you trying to re- reduce, I guess, friction from the... No, no. I, I, think, I think we off, we offer everything online that we have in the store. Um, okay. And when you looked, we were probably out and we turned it off at the... At the POS because allows you to turn off on the online side if we're out of something. You can still offer everything, but I guess what I'm getting at is do you, like I, I've done lots of interviews and people take me through their online ordering process. Like you want like, and I don't know if you're doing this, but like when people land on your digital platform, is there like a front and center like bundle like package? Or like hey, get your bagel, get your this and that and your drink, and like now you're basically using digital assets to upsell for you. We have not done that at this okay. point. Not not at this point. Now we just. I was curious if that was maybe that that front and center item was also the one the bit the best margin. Well, yeah, that 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 is kind of where we want to be. Um, okay. Kind of, and if you look at our menu, you can see where we place products. Maybe have higher margin than stuff. On yeah, like the last menu engineering is like yes. has ten x. Yeah. yeah, we've done that. We've not we've not done bundles in that way. Yeah, and, and one thing we did do is you know during COVID we did the. We we on our, if you went online you would see the first thing was our our subscription service which would deliver every Saturday or Sunday and it came with a dozen bagels a certain amount of uh, cream cheese eight ounce cream cheeses uh, packages of salmon a tomato a cucumber an onion and a uh, Philadelphia Inquirer are you still doing that we we stopped doing that why is that um, if if you look at the ramp of that business it was really strong throughout 2020. And in 2021, it just started to, you know, kind of people were getting too fat. They were getting no, no, <laughs> not getting too fat. No, they were they were basically starting to venture out. Yeah. So yeah. once the vaccines came out, people started. But I love the idea of, of a subscription model. I think that's I think more yeah. re- restaurants should take advantage. I mean, I, it's it's recurring pre- predictable income. Yes. You know, it's very powerful. Yeah. I agree. Even when people don't want the bagels, they're still getting it, <laughs> and then it's up to them to, to do what they wish with it. But they're still it's still going out the door, right? right and they, people right. forget about that stuff. Yeah, but there, there's also something to be said about like we're building these great restaurants, and they're way too expensive for, um, you know, we're we're doing really cool restaurants that you want to come and see and visit yeah. and experience, and Got so um, that's the only the only part. Like we don't want to push it too far. Plus, you know, ba- bagels don't last like it's really hard we decide not to go with gold belly um decide not to go with gold belly yeah no yeah. just because you know we we've hired we've brought bagels down from san viator and they're just not that good um you know five days later four days later whatever it is um and you know our products are all natural we don't have any enzymes or things to shelf stable mm-hmm. them they they aren't great after three days you know yeah. unless you freeze them so i i don't want 
someone in Colorado to have that first experience to spread bigger and not be amazing. So, so if you believe it or not, we've been talking for about an hour and a half. Okay. I told you it goes by really fast. fast. Um, yeah. We still have some time together, but I want to make sure we're talking about what you want to talk mm-hmm. about. What, is there anything we haven't discussed yet that is important for you to, to discuss? Um, I, I think the, the two areas, you know, I think this is a, um, we've been very lucky to have great people. And, you know, we do have a commissary model right now, but we are moving uh, to more of a, a co-packing model, which allows us to kind of utilize the best of other people who can make product exactly the way we would make it here, uh, but ship it, you know, through a distribution system right to our store. So I think that is uh, kind of part of the scalability, which is kind of getting into the kind of the franchising world down the road. Um, uh, number two is, you know, we... We continue to hit records every every week. It's just, it's kind of great to see that Philadelphia is becoming quite a uh, epicenter of the bagel area. I mean, you have some great great um, uh, competitors here, friends. Um, I remember we everybody goes through some tough times. We had a flood uh, in this building at one point, um, and we used uh, you know we had offers from every other bagel company to say, hey, "How can we help you?" Mm. Like that kind of environment is fantastic in Philadelphia, but people are making great bagels. And so obviously we're able to grow a lot faster than them. And we do have, why are you able to grow faster? Well, because the private equity group allowing us to, you know, grow new units and, but our customers, wherever we show up, I mean, we're, we're hitting records on the new stores and the new prototypes. So we're, um, you know, we're, we're blessed to have the consumer, uh, can be so strong for our brand. Yeah. So you, t- you, you started this when I asked you, what do you want to talk about? Talking about the, the co-packaging and the commissary. Mm-hmm. Get into why that excites you. Well, it excites me just because I, I see how much work goes into it. Um, and, you know, the problems that we had with in COVID, you know, if we had, you know, our lady who makes all our cream cheese and she makes, you know, 2,400 pounds of cream cheese a week, <laughs> you know, it's a, if she's, if she's sick, who's making cream cheese, yeah. right? And so having... You know, someone who has a hundred people on staff making cream cheese the exact same way we want to, um, really helps with kind of packaging, uh, vacuum sealing, uh, sending off. Uh, so it increases shelf life, but also, um, you know, brings up. So when we start opening up outside of the Philadelphia area, which is very soon, we can get into, um, you know, it's going to be really important to have someone distri- distribute that. I mean, I can't take it from our commissary and truck yeah. it down there every week. So. Yeah. So so when you're going to the commissary, you're not going to them to make your bagels. You're just going to them to take an element of what you do that's the most easy to replicate, mm-hmm. i.e. the cream cheese. Correct. You're giving them the recipe and they're producing it and packaging it and sending it to where it's Correct. needed. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Got so that, that's so why is that way better than doing in-house? I mean, get into the the, the logistics and the economics. Number, number one, again, going back at there's no, there's no sick time, you know, yeah. if and that's number one. Number two, it's uh, vacuum sealing it right now. We don't have a vacuum sealer. Yeah. Um, and third is getting it into the U S we signed a master distribution agreement with U S foods. So, you know, we don't have the, uh, kind of the FDA certification, uh, to get it into the U S foods facilities for distribution. Yeah. So having the companies like that do it where you can be reliable, they can be the buyers saying, Hey, um, you give them the specs, you give them the recipe, everything and, and the automated. Know, yes. And we have all the audit rates and we audit all the time. So, um, we haven't actually, that's going in soon. That's okay. going to the first store next week. Got it. Um, so we're opening up in Cherry Hill, but also soon. units of work is going through my mind, right? Units so of work. Yeah. if you have somebody at each location, yeah. 
taking up that space, paying like you have now it's eight or soon to be 10 locations. You got 10 different people making the same salary, doing that same thing. Like how that adds up. I can turn it from from a fixed cost to a variable cost. Right. So moving, you know, we're never going to let her go because we value her so highly. But if we can move her to doing something else, we can take this salary and the cost of the mixer and the cost of repairing the mixer and all that kind of stuff that goes into making cream cheese and turn it into a, we'll pay you, you know, a dollar per 40 pound or five pound thing of, of cream cheese. You know, it's based on how much I order now. But you're also paying one unit to do this. Right. Whereas having splitting all that up, but the, the, like I would imagine the cost to have one person run a big machine to make a bunch of it is a lot more economic than having a bunch of people make a little bit of it. No, they're they're they have they use technology in a lot of these stores that for pumpability and and it's pretty automated yeah. in, in many ways. So it actually works out to be pretty much the same cost, but we don't have right it now. But what about the future? Well, if if I want to if I want to open up in in Charleston, South Carolina, am I going to have to spend all the money on the fixed cost for a commissary, or can I have someone just produce what that commissary would be providing? And um, and in Columbia, South Carolina, and ship it over oh, to Charleston. Okay. Yeah, so you can have different co-packers around the, around the country. Got it. Um, but you have to have great partners, and so Got that's it. what I, last year and a half we've been working on finding those great partners um, who can do things the way we want to do it, not the way that fits their model as well. So it's been it's worked out pretty well. So, so you're far. looking at the markets where you want to go, and you're saying, well, how do we develop the relationships first? And then once we have the relationships, i.e., co-packaging yeah. and the systems in place, then we move into it. Um, yes, uh, the, it, the cream cheese example, that's kind of how we're looking at it. But being in the U S foods network, they will transport anything to anywhere in the country for us. So these co-packers are in the U S foods network. Yes. Or then they, they that become, a breaker for you? no, they become in the U S food. They have, enough, they have to have enough insurance. They have to have enough, um, audits on their, on their sites to make sure they're, you know, a clean site and the like, and they have the um, ability to, you know, U S food is very particular. What, what comes into that facility? You yeah. have to be. Um, you know, you have to have all the uh, certifications in order to get yeah. there. So, so the only other thing I, I really want to talk about mm-hmm. um, before we start to wrap things up is this idea of scale. Because you're yeah. going from uh, when you came on, you're at three or four locations. Mm-hmm. You help go to eight locations now, or Brooks comes on. Seven, I think you guys were at seven and eight. Now you're at ten. Yep. Yep. And, and he says you want to go to. Um, 60 in the next two years. Yeah, we have already. We're going to be at uh, 16 or 17 by the end of next year. At this time next year, we'll have 17. So one thing I love mm-hmm. about the scale you've had, and this, I think people are afraid to open more locations in one area, but you have 10 locations in or around, yep. like within what, 10 yep. miles? Yep, exactly. Why is that c- centrific? What is the word I'm looking for? Centrific circle lo- yep. scale? Is that is that a yes, term you're yeah, familiar yeah, with? Yeah, of course. So So basically... You know, we have um, a small loop. Centrific circle is what the word is. A small loop around Philadelphia. Um, in Philadelphia, it was the, the original. And then one layer, it's like the different arrondissements in Paris. Yeah. You know, just keep on going further and further away. Um, so, you know, this, you know, next week we're opening one, you know, in another another layer and then another layer after that. And the importance of that is um, access to the commissary, um, access of, of labor. And so, remember I said that all of our back end systems are all all the same so our grill is exactly where our, our um right knows where the cash register is and the like so we we share a lot of employees if when there's turnover we need people to call an audible yeah call an audible bring someone from another store over and 
that's worked out um, really well. Um, we are venturing starting in March, um, our first uh, area outside of Philadelphia. So we're moving to Charleston. Okay, I was going to say, but were we allowed to talk about it? Or is yeah, that sure. No, that's a pretty far jump from. It from, is. Uh, it is. So we're do, we're going to do another circle. So why in, not like why not Washington? Why not New York? Why not? Well, um, one of the things that we are allowed to do is think think long term. Okay. And if we want to be at what Brooke said, from what you just said, sixty plus units in the next couple of years, um, you know, we have to know how to um, manage restaurants that are far away and hiring the right people, having the right processes and operation manuals in place, um, having all of the, whether it be commissary built or co-packers distributing into those stores, um, we need to prove to ourselves uh, that, and we need, there's going to be some learning that comes with that, right? So we're basically going to have that Southeast market as as the next one. Um, Do you see Charleston or Charlotte? Charleston. Charleston. Yeah. South Carolina. Well, the first one is going to be in Mount Pleasant, which is the suburbs of Charleston. Okay. Uh, the second one's going to be in Charleston. The third one's going to be in Savannah, Georgia. So we already okay. have this. So planned. you're doing, so it's like two rounds of centrific. So you have the centrific growth, centrific circles in the Philly area, mm-hmm. and then you're going to take an implant, yep. a culture carrier, somebody who, who gets it. You're going to put them there yep. and you're going to do the same thing. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So one of our, one of our employees is, is lives in Charleston now. And so she's going to become our GM and, and soon area manager of those two restaurants and then three restaurants. So Got it. we have people who know our, our process, our style, our culture, and just like the gentleman from Columbus is like knowing that culture and making sure it's repeatable um, wherever we go and make sure that that kind of kindness and hospitality is upheld. Yeah. Um, I think the other big part about the centrific circle approach, the, the growth is that it's brand recognition. Even mm-hmm. though your brand is unique in the sense that I was hoping we'd get more into this, that I like that you're, that each space is unique. Mm-hmm. It's, but at the same time, are, are you worried or concerned about struggling with the brand recognition? Like if I go past one, will I, will I know that that is a spread? I'm like, and if I, if I had known, would I have gone in? So I, I think the, the beauty of it is that, you know, you think of the store that you go to all the time is yours, yeah. right? And I don't care if you know that we're from Philadelphia or have one in, if you're walking in the Charleston right off of King street that there, we have one in Savannah. It doesn't, I don't, I don't care, but if you see it, um, you're going to know, know the spread name. Obviously, the name on the door, um, but everything's going to look a little bit different. We're trying to. The logo will be the same. Uh, no, no, well, really. Our logos are a little bit different. Okay. our logo is our logo, but uh, a lot of restrictions in Charleston of like what you can, oh, right. how you can write your name. So, um, it, it will, they will be different there. But um, yeah, so I, 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 I want it to be for the community. Got it. And we give back a lot of money to the community, just like I don't know if Brooks touched it is. You know, we, every store used to have a charitable cause that was developed by the staff of the people in the area, um, whether it be, you know, hey, you know, Mr. Smith needs a new Bilco door. And that's what we heard through the grapevine and we want to help him out. We're going to do that or give to a you know, Little League baseball team and sponsor their shirts. You know, we've taken that. And, you know, for us in Philly, um, we are now kind of taking all the stores and going around the Eagles Autism Foundation and is going to be very important for us. So we've, we're spending a lot of time. Uh, we have new shirts put out. We have autism education going out. Um, one of our, um, I've, I've given a lot of my time to kids with intellectual disabilities over the, over the years. Um, and we do have someone in the office who, uh, son does have, uh, is on the spectrum. So it's really nice to kind of give back to the Philadelphia area, um, with the Eagles and, um, 
uh, they're doing such a great job and I'm kind of raising the raising a lot of money for them. So it's for a small company. Uh, it's quite uh, great to give back to the community because, you know, they're our community. You know, everybody here knows someone or is affected by autism and everybody wants to support the Eagles, of course, and their, their fight to, to raise money for this. So we are definitely helping out. And I think it's uh, getting all the resources from all the stores coming in, coming together to kind of fight one cause. It's also great for our, our, our employees and to believe. I always think that the best way to drive culture is to, you know, take a day off of work and grab people and go paint a fence or plant trees. It's the idea of giving back is so dramatic for our own self-worth and um, our teamwork together. Yeah. And I think that just brings us together too. So it's a, it's, it's a both function. It's weird. Uh, this is kind of a weird conversation, but I kind of believe, I believe nature works in really strange ways. I think that nature knows that there's a, Every tribe, every group, every organization, like there's a place, there used to be a place for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's a place in the world for people with special needs. Like, like there was more opportunity for purpose for these people going back. Yeah. Um, and it's weird for me to say this. I don't know. I'm not trying to sound weird. Like, I feel like, dude, I'm special needs. I'm colorblind, dyslexic, ADHD, mm-hmm. and arguably on the spectrum, like some people have argued. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I just well, where I'm going with this is like there was there was a need for people to do certain things, just one simple thing, really well, and they had a purpose, mm-hmm. and they were happy to sweep or they were happy to organize. They use their their uh, compulsive disorder to organize a shelf or something like that, and they had a purpose, and there was nothing wrong with that. But as we automate, as we streamline, as we eliminate these these I don't want to call them lower tier jobs, but more simple jobs, we don't have as much purpose. There's not as much opportunity for people. There's, you know, there was opportunity for these people, right? You know what I'm saying? I get, I get, I get what you're saying, but it's also, we try to be as inclusive as possible at all times. Right. Yeah. And it's what I, I believe in. And, um, we're also a, a management team that is focused on, uh, more of a meritocracy. And so if you're doing well at sweeping that floor or rearranging that and you have the drive or the desire to do more, Guess what? You're in here with me learning P&Ls or you're learning from Brooks how to prep and and come up with something crazy, new cream cheese yeah. or, or learn how to cook. But another, and, yeah, another vertical that is worth looking at is um, these people that are on the spectrum might not be good in social situations, but they true. also tend to be super hyper obsessed yep. with little like like singular verticals yep. like uh, penguins or something. Right. Or the, but these were are also I think they were like our experts at one point mm-hmm. or like the people that would organize a bunch of data because like they're strong in certain areas and there is purpose for these people. But now with the computers and stuff like this, that we're losing like, you know what I'm saying? Like the, like this, the people that were maybe not good in social situations, but they were like just walking in encyclopedias yeah. had a purpose at one point. And like, they're slowly, like we don't, we're relying on technology to, to do that for yeah. us now. Yeah. So. But, but one of the things that Eagles autism is, is it basically also educating the, co- the community yeah. about what autism is. Yeah. And it's not something to, it's something to um, uh, embrace and to learn more about and to kind of help those who don't have the advantages that you have. Well, yeah. They're strong in some areas, but you know, it's really about um, helping find um you know whether it be cures or just education of the consumers and that's kind of what matters to us being having someone on our our team here who has a son um or to someone like me who used to go to do a thing with uh, anthony shriver called best buddies up in massachusetts um do a lot of raising money there or melmark here in uh, outside philadelphia um 
any way to help and to make their lives better um, makes you feel more alive. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, it's great. So it's, it's going to be great for our, our staff. It's going to be great for um, the Eagles Autism Foundation. And that's it. And I thought you were saying Eagles Autism Foundation. Eagles. The Philadelphia I, the, Eagles. Isn't that Sorry. I just clicked? No, you're fine. I was like, what? The ego? I was like, I didn't get Eagles. it. Yeah, <laughs> get it, get it. Go All right, cool. So we got to think about wrapping it up. Yep. But um, the, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Um, how do you um, want to transform the industry? If we could go together intentionally, what, what does that look like? Um, the industry. The, the wow. industry can go together intentionally and start making um, differences for a better yeah. industry collectively. What does yeah. that look like in your eyes? Um, I think it's to um, uh, authentically ask yourself how we can um, make our businesses run while ethically providing a good living for everybody who works for us. Got it. I think I think what has happened is it's it's always been a race to the bottom line, um, or the lowest common denominator. And I think that there's so much. Running a business is like the most creative thing you can do. Now, not talking about just being a brand, but like thinking about how to interact with a customer, to interact with your staff, to how do we engage the community through interior design to hospitality to product and elevation of products. So I think it's very creative, and so I think that. We have should have a lot of creative minds out there. Um, every other business in the world, you know, pretty much except retail restaurants, um, you know, pay gap is so dramatic. And I think what we have done here is paid um, not only with compensation above average plus tips and, and all that stuff, and having this open kitchen where kind of everybody is kind of engaged and kind of having fun with the customers, um, but treating with respect and dignity. And I think dignity is the biggest thing. I think. Um, where we, where a lot of restaurants have lacked is the dignity of the people who are doing all the work. Yeah, I was going to say something else, but like they do all the work. They yeah, make Brooks that run. Trouble. He, he dropped a couple yeah, of yeah. So we'll I, th- talk to him I think I think there's there's <laughs> ways to go about uh, changing that dynamic, and I think that will it will lead to more creative people and more yeah. loyal people, um, and happier family life balance. Um, and I think that's kind of what's important for us. And I think that message that you just shared needs to be at the leading edge of the message when we talk to the consumer and say, this is why it costs this. Yeah. Because if we're going to make a better community, exactly, we need it to come from you Great. because you support us and we support your kids, your, yep. your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles. Mm-hmm. It needs to, it needs to come from the inside out. Right. Yeah, I Absolutely. love this conversation. Great. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. 10 question speed round. We'll bust it out. <laughs> okay. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Look, I don't need to explain to you that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and their staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. This is because it uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located or what are your hours? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Within the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow-up links 
links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone call 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most, your guests in-house. The time is now to prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off your first month and learn more about pop menus, full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Um, my success would be uh, humility. What is your biggest weakness? Um, being too optimistic. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? Are they going to, number one is, are they going to be the right culture to end I want to continue. Every person I bring on has to bring something to elevate the entire group. Mm-hmm. Can they offer something not only in their specialty, but they, can they offer in, uh, elevate the professionalism or the, um, the data so we can leverage more? Because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Um, anything they can do to make the team better is what I'm looking for. Yeah. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Um. I think it's growth. I think that is the, that's what keeps me up at night. Specifically is, what? Um, you know, making sure. So we talked about the first 130 years being about logistics. Well, it's still about logistics in so many ways. Um, is having, I think, getting the, the right products at the right quality um, to the stores on time is, is kind of what I worry about. There's so many layers of, of people bringing in, bringing in product that are, it's our own product. Or, you know, we, we bring uh, pastrami down from Carnegie Deli. Um, out of New York, and that's just well, selling points like the best pastrami. So, like, yeah. we're going to sell it. Yeah. Um, you know, getting the availability of that, or you know, that kind of thing. Can is, you is, scale your level of excellence? Correct. Yeah. And we need to make sure we have pastrami on on tap every day. You know, yeah. so it's uh, if there is a logistical hiccup in their system, obviously affects what we can sell. Yeah. I think that that just uh, that unknown mm. continues to irk me a little bit, even though. You know, I try to focus on what I can control. Like we have the relationship, we have the, the buying power, we have the distribution, but like, how are you overcoming it? Um, I, I think that's it. Just realizing you can't control everything and, you know, relying on the, the team, the operations team to make sure, um, you know, where the product's coming from is going to be there and we're going to be put as a priority because of our growth. We can kind of dangle that carrot a little bit and say, if you want to be with us for the next, you know, as we go from, 10 units to 60 units um, plus uh, that it's going to be a big business for you. So make sure that we're taken care of. Yeah. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior. You teach your team a way to be a way to act a core value. Um, I always tell our team to think of ourselves as a 50 store chain and think about us as a 50 store chain. Cause we're going to be there soon. Yeah. Um, so don't think small. Like just because we are relatively small, um, our growth is, and our, our base that we have already is is pretty big. But they can think myopically, and I, I want to kind of open their eyes and say we are a big company, and the decisions we make are 
act like we are a 50 store already. And those are the decisions that we have to make at that time. Um, because if you start thinking, making decisions that you're a 10 or 12 store company, that's going to be, you're gonna have to repeat it all again when you're a 20 store company. So think big, think long term, And that's the kind of quality. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, not common throughout the industry to go above and beyond. Um, I think it's to notice people and to understand the other side of the counter. Um, because I think one thing we've been teaching people a lot is to, you know, focus on your job at hand, but your job is really to take care of the customer and focus on, you know, people are waiting too long and, uh, come and come with conversation, free product. Um, Hey, have you tasted this yet? A little taste test. I think that is that reaching out because, I don't care if you give away 20 bagels a day, 50 bagels a day. It, it, I, it builds loyalty. It builds, I see you, you're seen, you're heard. You're, this is your community kind of gathering spot. Yeah. Um, it makes them kind of feel more inclusive. What's one book that's a must read and makes a better person or restaurant owner? Um, I wish you had a, wish you had a book. Um, <laughs> I don't have one. I mean, my podcast. Everyone's like, "Why don't you have a book?" I'm like, "Is it not enough that I record two episodes a week? Like, isn't can't that just be my book?" Um, <laughs> um, I, I think the last book that I read, which I really enjoyed, um, which was interesting because it 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 talks about things that you should do, but also the things that you shouldn't do. It's called Principles, and it talks a lot about um, you know personal principles, um, but also talks about how you should deal with other people. Um, and how data can help with that. And then it goes into the kind of like, I believe the downside of too much data. And that is you can rely on, on it too much that, um, you get, you kind of lose the personality of the people and the relationships you have. Yeah. And so, uh, I thought that was, a, that was that's a by book. Ray Dalia, right? Yeah. Ray Dalia. Principles yeah. by Ray Dalia. That yeah. book is sitting on my shelf. I haven't yeah. read it yeah. yet, it's but I've heard it's really great. I gave, um, it, to, I gave it to my son just I made last a, Christmas. I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to read any more books until I implemented all the lessons from the current series of books that I'm reading, <laughs> which yeah. are, uh, the, the traction books from Gina Wickman. Okay. I want to become an EOS company. And I think that if I implement all the lessons from those books, mm-hmm it will get me to the point where I can start thinking about other books, you Got know, it. but I think we were all, we're all guilty of reading so much and learning, but we never do the things that we're told to do in the book. Right. We think just knowing it is going to make a difference, <laughs> you know? Right. Exactly. So. <laughs> um, so I'm making a commitment not to, I'm trying to really control myself there. Um, and that book is on audible, by the way, if you go to a restaurant or if you go to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable, I think we earn like 15 bucks. So thank you in advance. If you're not already listening to audiobooks, it's a game changer. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um, I go back to that show, show respect and dignity to the people who actually do most of the work. Yeah. 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 What is, easy, sorry, that's an easy one. What is one piece of technology that you've recently adopted within your restaurant that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines? Um, back of house, it was implementing um, kind of our toast extra POS and extra chef. Yeah. Um, that's been, that's been very helpful for us, uh, from the, on the back end. I think that, you know, over the last year and a half, we finally brought in KDSs into the system just for, you know, the printouts. Sometimes they would have lose their ink and people yeah. are reading, you know, different cheeses wrong and the customers are complaining the order was wrong. Yeah. So I think having it 
having it pop up right away straight through from our kind of Olo plat, uh, ordering platform right onto the KDS has been very helpful. Yeah, the cool thing I think about KDS too is as we move more into a digital world, we're not just getting orders coming from one POS. Right, right. We're getting orders coming in from this POS over here, that POS over here, yeah. knowing where that ticket goes, not investing in all the different paper and the, but also you're getting it from third party. You're getting it from native. You're getting, right. we're getting bombarded from every yeah, angle. And the demand has been so strong specifically on Saturdays and Sundays for our business that we, you know, are in a prototype. Now we have, a, we have a second line um, that's needed uh, to maintain the store um, throughput. Yeah. And, and then also, so if it's a, third party order it goes to a different kds and some other team is working on that what's your favorite feature about extra chef um i, I kind of like the dynamic updating and pricing um so i really can you know i have my uh our controller looking and tracking like the top 20 items yeah. we have and <clears throat> understand how they're how they're growing and mm-hmm. you know even if our if our cogs go uh down by 20 basis points um, but theoretically it should have gone down 30 basis points. We're like, we're not doing a good job. Even yeah. It went down. It's like, yeah. we're still underperforming. So I think that's been very helpful. I love that dynamic pricing and I encourage more people. I think we're so afraid of like not being consistent mm-hmm. that like we're, we're not, we're afraid to like charge what something's worth, but it should be an equation. Every transaction should be baked in profitability. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's good to be consistent with the deliverable, but pff, we need to make our money and we should not be afraid of charging the exact value of something or cost of something. I agree with that. Yeah. I just, uh, I just think that when it comes to extra chef or kind of the automation that we put through our financial systems, it really gives us real time knowledge of, um, you know, be able to measure something so we can manage it better. Yeah. And yeah. then we have great people like Brooks or, um, you know, our director of operations, Richard Jumbo allows us to you know, manage a lot faster. And, um, you know, we get the data and we kind of go to work and saying, here's a problem. Let's solve the problem. And yeah. that's all we have to do. This is the last question. Great. It's a doozy. Get ready for all it. Right. Wait. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants will be lost with your departure. With the exception Jeez. of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity oh and for your legacy. <laughs> Or those three pieces of wisdom, you'd be surprised the amount of in, in terms of virals Jamie I get. was <laughs> Jamie was uh, uh, Jamie was kind. One um, Jamie was um, built an organization that was very flat, i.e. hierarchy, humility, okay. not knowing we all don't have the answers. We okay. need a team to build this uh, man, woman, every race, every gender. Um, be nice, be flat. <laughs> <laughs> run a flat organization where everybody's. Uh, opinion matters is really what it is. Three. Um, and uh, kind of tr- uh, treated everybody, whether it be the uh, Brooks Tanner, um, who I've known forever, respect a lot, um, to the person who's doing the dishes um, with the same amount of respect and care. Got it. Jamie, I've loved today's conversation, Thank man. You. Thank you Thank so you. much. You've been a lot of fun. Um, this is something that I'm really trying to be my North Star, this, this next question. It's the last, I know I said that was the last question, but we wrap up every episode by having my guests call somebody out. And this is, I mean, I could go chase influencers. I could go chase Instagram followers and see who has the most influence. Or I could ask you, word of mouth, who do you respect and admire and believes needs to, believe needs to be made an example of on the show? I think this person has um, has enough uh, admiration and wealth to last many lifetimes. Um, but I do think one of the biggest mentors that I've had, which I don't even think he knows this, yeah, is Ron Shake. Ron Shake. And he was the CEO of Panera. Um, and 
watching his transformation and how he thought uh, was and actually treated people was the most um, influential thing to me. Now he has a, another firm called Act Three. Uh, they own companies like Kava or Tate up in Boston or DC. Um, uh, everything he does is just differentiated, and I think I'm we're trying to kind of at least um, mirror some of the, uh, the influence the, by the yeah. differentiation of our what concept what we're doing, but also bring it down to a real uh, area of dignity for everybody in this organization. So I think we're um, we're on our way. We're getting there. Ron Schick, look, I'm coming after you. I'd love to make that happen. And um, how can we connect if we're inspired by, I mean, you and Brooks are off each other's heels. Um, Lots of inspiration. Lots of good stuff came from both these interviews. I I love speaking to both of you. Um, You're growing fast. There's tons of opportunity Mm -hmm. within this organization. My my mission is also to help connect good people with good people. So if we want to connect with you, maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we want to grow with you. What's the best way to connect? Yeah, so I think Brooks mentioned it uh, on his, but info at spreadbakery.com. It's number one. You can always uh, email me. It's uh, Jamie, J-A-M-I-E, at spreadbakery.com. Just I have to say it, man, before we say goodbye. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. (laughs) Cheers. Thanks, man. There's another episode locked in the vault here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Jamie Schrottberger. Man, you went granular. You got into some detail, and I really loved every second of it. Thank you so much. And I cannot be more excited to watch the growth of Spread Bagelry. Uh, this, this company is at, I want to say, 10 locations, soon to be 10 locations, hoping to be at 18 locations by the end of the year. And some serious growth the following year. Um, almost, I think they're, they're planning on doubling that number or more. So, I plan on following the growth of Spread Bagelry, and I cannot wait to take you guys in behind the scenes of how this company is evolving. But they have a freaking A team after it, so I know they're going places. Uh, lots of cool things happening at Restaurant Unstoppable, and we need your support. And here's a cool thing. You support us, and you get support. It's it's a win-win situation, I'm telling you. Uh, we had our first Ask a Pro and Ask a Pure sessions go live yesterday. Uh, special thanks to Rudy Mick and Bob Sloop for uh, leading in at the Ask the Pro series, and then special thanks to Sean Lyons for leading the Ask a Pure series. So whether you need to ask a pro hard questions or you have personal issues and you just need a peer to talk to, somebody who understands, somebody who gets it we're here for you and uh this thing this network nearly a thousand interviews these are the people i have been referred to uh in in that time and now my network is your network and we're all coming together around the spirit of paying it forward to the next generation of professionals to transform this industry i'm pretty freaking psyched i gotta be honest so i can't wait to see you guys over there for that uh other ways you can support the show, support our sponsors, use our affiliate links, share this podcast with everybody and anyone you know, and let them know about the network. And then lastly, uh, I cannot say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make the show possible. Thank you to Jerry Parisi at Sumadre Podcast for his editing and copy. Thank you to Sam Hall at Sav and Sam.com for the videography and for being on the road with me you guys it takes a team you can't do it alone i'm grateful for my team that's it for today until next time peace out